You like spy movies, Mr. DeVille? When I was a kid, that was my dream job. Gentleman spy. Welcome to Now Playing's review of Kingsman, The Secret Service. I'm offering you the opportunity to become a Kingsman agent. Like a spy. Of sorts. Part of our Marvel movie retrospective series. The suit is a modern gentleman's armor. The Kingsman agents are the new knights. Hosted by Jacob. He's as much Kingsman material as any of them. Stuart. Huge IQ. Great performance at school. And Arnie. Oh, you know your shit. This podcast will contain detailed movie spoilers and harsh language. Son of a bitch. Listener discretion is advised. Are we going to stand around here all day? Or are we going to fight? Assemble the Kingsman. Today, we're discussing Kingsman, The Secret Service, starring Colin Firth, Samuel L. Jackson, Mark Strong, Taron Egerton, Michael Caine, directed by Matthew Vaughn. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, and usually I have a clever line here, but this ain't that type of movie. Stuart in L.A.? This is Jacob, your Catholic whore of a co-host, and I I need to visit my black Jewish boyfriend who works at an abortion clinic after the show. (laughs) (laughs) And here we are doing our first live podcast review of Kingsman, The Secret Service. And truth be told, part of the reason it's live is because, damn, this was inconveniently released. (laughs) It's amazing you even got a chance to see it. I guess you were snowed in, huh? When you were at Toy Fair, Arnie. Oh yeah, I was up at... New York City covering Toy Fair for Marvelicious Toys and Star Wars Action News, the collecting podcasts I do. And I ended up seeing this at AMC theaters up there. The AMC Prime, they only have like 25 in the country. I figured if I was going to see this in Manhattan, I'd make it an experience. But we were supposed to be reviewing this back in October when we found out it was being released Toy Fair weekend. We're like, well, how do we make that a show? And I got to admit, I mean, there's two movies that really screwed us with the scheduling last year. There was Jupiter Ascending, of course. (laughs) The gift that keeps on giving. And then Kingsman, which was supposed to come out last October. They both got moved within a week of each other here in February. And usually when that happens, that means you're in for one shitty ass movie. And with Jupiter Ascending, that's true. (laughs) I went into Kingsman with mixed hopes. I consider myself a fan of Matthew Vaughn. I love Kick-Ass, love X-Men First Class. Both of those reviews are in the archives. But February? That's a dark cloud on the horizon here. Isn't that when we did those Ghost Rider movies and all kinds of awful movies? Daredevil and Elektra were both released around this time. Yeah, but, you know, maybe that is changing now. I mean, they just had, I think, Hollywood's biggest Valentine's Day weekend ever, partly because of this movie, largely because of that bondage thing that people just can't get enough of. Hey, Norbit was a February release that made a lot of money, too. That doesn't make it good. No, but profitable. And Fox knew something in moving this. I mean, there is a Valentine character in this, releasing it on Valentine's Day. Maybe that was part of the thinking. I think Fox knew they had a property that wasn't as kid-friendly as maybe some of the other Marvel, true Marvel movies, and yeah, 
this could go one or two ways. You know, I definitely felt buttons being pushed for me when I watched this movie. Audiences are either going to take to this or they're going to steer away like kick-ass, which, again, everyone thought that was going to be a hit until it came out. And then everyone said, well, of course it wasn't a hit. They market a movie for kids that was R-rated. Yeah, and kick-ass from Matthew Vaughn based on a comic by Mark Millar as is Kingsman. In fact, Kingsman was an idea that Mark Miller and Matthew Vaughn had while they were working together on Kick-Ass. They were like, wouldn't this be a great idea? Miller went off and wrote the comic that Jacob and I reviewed at booksandnachos.com, and it was always intended that this would be a movie they would do together. But then Matthew Vaughn had a massive hit with X-Men First Class. I mean, a hit for his career, not a hit for the X-Men series by any means. Which is a shame. Best X-Men film out there. Yeah, completely. It might be an underrated movie, you could say. (laughs) But he was signed up to do X-Men Days of Future Past. He dropped out of that and decided to make this instead. Now, I listened to your guys' show on the source material. It almost sounds like they cheated, right? It almost sounds like, oh, we're going to write a, air quotes, comic book, but really we just want to launch the screenplay that won't get greenlit in Hollywood unless we say it's based on a comic book. Which is a common practice. A lot of comic book fans hate when writers do that. It's sometimes very obvious when you read a comic and it's written to be a screenplay. It's a fairly common practice. 30 Days of Night, that was put out as a screenplay. No one wanted it, so they did it as a comic. It was a pretty good hit, and so then it got sold as a movie after that. So this has been going on for a while. Now, silly me, I'm not a comic book fan. I must put that preface almost every time we talk about one of these movies. But I've never heard of spy comics. Is this popular to do like a Kingsman? Is there a whole genre I don't know about? Because to me, this feels like it's riffing on James Bond. And so thus that they want to put this in the comics world first seems a little backward. Yeah, Cold War era comics, you got some of the spy stuff. That's when Nick Fury went from a soldier to a super spy. But Captain America, Ed Brubaker, when he's the one who wrote The Winter Soldier, he always had this kind of spy mentality, I felt, with his Captain America run. It felt not so much superhero. There was a red skull and a guy with a TV in his chest. But it had those size sensibilities. But no, it's not a big subgenre of comics. Yeah, because watching this, I don't think there's no Marvel at the beginning of this, of course, partly because it's Fox and not Marvel Studios proper. There's just very little indicator for the common layperson walking into this to think that this was based on anything. It feels like it's a new spy movie with Colin Firth as James Bond. To me, if anything, it feels based on kick-ass. The number of kick-ass parallels here are just tremendous. But instead of being a parody of the superhero genre, yeah, they're going after James Bond. I also thought this might have been based on an actual suit. I was confused because the comic was called The Secret Service. The movie's called Kingsman The Secret Service. It takes place at a Kingsman suit shop. I thought there might actually be one because you can buy a Kingsman suit. They had that merchandising (laughs) tie-in. Yeah, I read there was like 60 exclusive like designer suits and pants and jackets all created for the weird tie-in for this movie. I want that tweed jumper. I think that's the best. That's like the (laughs) most impractical thing. Like, I don't know. It would be so eye-catching. In LA, where you can get away with wearing everything, I don't think I could walk outside in that. How about a top hat? (laughs) Sure, why not? I'm bringing that back. 
hey, I am a comic book movie collector, but even I blanched when I, I did look. The suits are ties in from Mr. Porter, and you can get a Kingsman suit for the low, low price of $2,500. Oh, is that all? <laughs> I'll take three. <laughs> if they're bulletproof, it's actually, in, it might be a good idea. <laughs> Especially in your neighborhood. <laughs> So, Arnie, how about a plot? We'll get into the movie. In 1997, a private independent secret service organization called the Kingsmen take on an operation in the Middle East. Things go bad and one member of the team dies. Mission leader Harry Hart, codenamed Galahad, played by Colin Firth, takes this hard and goes to visit the dead agent's widow Michelle and her young son Gary. He gives Michelle her husband's posthumous Medal of Valor and promises the widow a favor if ever needed. Now, 17 years later, Gary Unwin, better known by his nickname Eggsy, played by Taryn Egerton, is a thug in London. His mother is living with a local gangster named Dean, and Eggsy is taken to petty crime with his mates. But when he steals the car of Dean's head goon and gets arrested, Eggsy, who had taken to wearing his dead father's medal around his neck, calls in that favor to avoid 18 months in prison. But Harry Hart personally comes to get Eggsy out of prison and sees hope in the boy who'd gotten good grades and was almost on the Olympic gymnastic team before things went bad. He offers Eggsy a chance to train to be a Kingsman agent. Now, there are only nine Kingsmen at a time, plus their leader, Arthur, played by Michael Caine. But Agent Lancelot was killed trying to rescue a kidnapped college professor, Arnold, played by Mark Hamill? With Lancelot dead, each surviving Kingsman plus Arthur nominates a new recruit. They're tested, and through the process of elimination, the last agent standing is a Kingsman. So it's kind of like The Bachelor, only with death. <laughs> Eggsy undergoes his training at the hands of Kingsman tech guy Merlin, played by kick-ass actor Mark Strong. And meanwhile, Harry investigates the case that got Lancelot killed, which leads him to a plot by Richmond Valentine, played by Samuel L. motherfucking Jackson. Valentine is a tech billionaire and a genius, but his philanthropic efforts to reduce global warming have failed. As such, he suggests an extreme way to ensure the survival of the human species, kill most of the people on Earth. This will reduce the carbon emissions and allow Earth to heal. To do this, Valentine has developed a signal that can be broadcast from his cell phone and trigger aggression while muting inhibition and cause humans to brutally kill each other. He's offered free cellular and internet service worldwide to ensure that when he starts the weapon, billions will be killed in each other's hands. But Valentine is handpicking survivors, giving them implants that prevent them from being affected by the cell signal. Anyone who refuses his offer is held captive until after the plot occurs. Harry is present at the final test of this weapon at a racist Kentucky church, and when the signal goes off, Harry's training allows him to slaughter every last person in the church before Valentine shoots the Kingsman in the head. As for Eggsy, his training had gone very well. Despite not fitting in with the other candidates, all of whom are well-to-do, Eggsy persevered and was one of the last two to become a Kingsman, but his refusal to kill the dog that he had trained had him ejected from the program. But with Harry's death, Eggsy returns and discovers that Arthur is in on Valentine's plot. Not knowing who to trust, Merlin, Eggsy, and Roxy, the student who beat Eggsy out for the Kingsman slot, team up to stop Valentine alone. Roxy conquers her fear of heights by using hot air balloons to go to the atmosphere and shoot out one of Valentine's satellites. Meanwhile, Eggsy poses as Arthur and infiltrates Valentine's bunker, where several of his hand-picked survivors are out waiting the upcoming slaughter. Eggsy leads a pitched battle against Valentine's henchmen, including Valentine's right-hand helper, Gazelle, a lethal assassin with swords for legs. 
Eggsy kills Gazelle and impales Valentine with one of her legs, saving the world. And now the Kingsmen have a new leader, and Eggsy is a Kingsman agent, taking his mother out of the ghetto and beating up the abusive Dean as credits roll. So a lot in there, it's not a lot of characters, but a lot of things happening in a couple parallel storylines, plus one hell of a prologue that completely confused me at first. I'm like, is this a 1997 period piece, and why are they playing 80s music in 97? But we start with Dire Straits and Money for Nothing. I think they stole this joke from Three Kings, because I can remember Eddie Murphy's Party All the Time being a big hit during the uh, first Gulf War, which it was eight years beyond it being a hit for anyone else. I think they want to get to the idea that this is a so backward a place that they would just be hearing Money for Nothing on cassette. <laughs> I wasn't even sure because the music starts playing during the Marv logo. So when it starts up on a very extreme close-up of a old cassette, I actually think it's another production studio company logo. I did wonder that too. But I had a different experience seeing this. It wasn't in 3D. I guess I had a 4D experience. I didn't plan this. I happened to walk into the theater and they were advertising it as a sensation experience. Sin is in cinema, not S-I-N, which could have made the end of this film a lot more fun, having that whole anal sex scene. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know what you're talking about. I've seen these in LA. There's one in downtown where it's like it's a theme park ride. The seats are programmed to move with the motion and the sound. Yeah, every time there was an explosion, the seat would rumble, and luckily you're able to turn it off. I quickly turned that off. I couldn't imagine sitting through the whole film having that happen, but I sat through the opening credits scene with all the explosions and this whole rescue scene, and then I said, oh, that's neat, off. See, when I went to the AMC Prime experience, that was more about having just a huge screen. I mean, it was probably faux IMAX. They didn't call it IMAX, and... Every chair had an ass kicker subwoofer in it. So during these explosions in the Middle East at the beginning, I was feeling some rumble, but it wasn't anything I had the ability to turn off. My chair wasn't rocking. I mean, they sell these for home theaters too, just the ass kicker subwoofers in there. The nice thing was it was a nice recliner leather chair. I mean, I so enjoyed the AMC Prime experience. I've talked a lot of shit about AMC on this show, deservedly so, for they fucked up Jupiter Ascending too. But the AMC Prime in New York was so good, I'm legitimately thinking of going to New York for the Avengers premiere. My disappointment was I didn't think that the chairs rumbled enough for Kingsman. I'm like, this would be awesome for Star Wars Episode 7 or for Avengers 2. For Kingsman, there weren't a lot of explosions and gunshots. I mean, it's a lot of hand-to-hand -hand stuff, and the chairs were silent for that. So it was just a really comfy viewing experience versus if the chairs are rocking, don't come a-knockin'. I saw this in a normal theater, but packed. I gotta say, it was crowded. People turned out for this movie. I wasn't sure what the expectation was. I thought this might bomb. I guess I just presumed after Kick-Ass and Kick-Ass 2 that the sensibility wasn't going to be popular here in America. It seemed like a European thing, but crowded theater and people were laughing and, and screaming right from the get-go. It was a very animated audience. Well, I did see this movie a second time in the local shithole AMC theater. <laughs> <laughs> this morning, live show, I wanted to be sure that I had everything fresh. I saw an opening day AMC Prime in a fairly packed audience of people, 20s, 30s, and 40s. It's weird who goes to a movie on a Tuesday morning in my town. It was me and the AARP crowd. 
a much different experience <laughs> in the AARP crowd. A lot of the jokes, like the asshole one, got huge laughs in the younger crowd. The older crowd, they didn't even stay for the end credit scene. They saw an end credit scene was happening and continued <laughs> to leave. They actually were leaving in the middle of the movie. It just took them half the movie to get it to the door. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, the chairs were shaking during the opening with these helicopters attacking this fortress and you see four masked men and maybe I read the news too much, but I'm thinking ISIS. I'm thinking these are the bad guys. They're standing around torturing a man tied up in a chair saying, by the time we count to 10, you'll tell us what we want to know. I'm thinking beheadings. I was really shocked that the four masked men are our heroes. I actually could tell. You could see Colin Firth's pasty white skin poking through <laughs> the gas mask. But I think we're meant to be fooled. I think that Malar and Vaughn are people that revel in surprising you. And this movie, believe me, I was plenty surprised by many of the twists. But here at the beginning, I thought these were the Kingsmen dropping in. What I thought was interesting is they set up Galahad or Harry Hart, Colin Firth's character, as fallible right away. Usually you think James Bond, like super suave and cool, doesn't make mistakes. Here, right away, he's making a mistake. The terrorist has a explosive on him, and one of the other Kingsmen jumps on him to cover it up, and Harry's like, I can't believe I missed that. How did I miss that? And just to be clear, this is all happening very fast. I don't know who any of these people are yet. These are all the trainees. These are all people that are aspiring to be Lancelot. I think so. One of them is Merlin, who we'll find out is basically Q. I, I equate everybody to James Bond. Sure, Merlin yeah. is the Q, but he's also Arlie Ermy as well. So he's going to be the one who does the training and everything else. And then the other one is Harry, played by Colin Firth. Kind of an unusual choice for the King's Speech actor, who I primarily know from romancing Bridget Jones. But the other two who are there, one is a trainee who will become the new Lancelot, and then Lancelot will be killed 10 minutes later. But the other one is, I don't even really catch a name on two viewings, but it's Eggsy's father who throws himself on the grenade to save the lives of the other people. But was he a trainee? Did he not make it? I guess that's what we take from later on when Eggsy is told, your father made it this far. Is He and the other one were both competing for Lancelot. It's not really clear because we don't know how Eggsy's dad got involved with the Kingsman. I don't even know how old he is, but I would think he's older than the mean age of most of these trainees who seem almost exactly like 20. Like, if they came to the States, they couldn't even drink. Yeah, I didn't take this as a bunch of trainees. I took it as Eggsy's dad had made it into the King's Men. No, I think some lip service is actually given to, well, and I can't remember his name, you are the new Lancelot. I think uh, somebody is crowned in that moment. I think they took trainees into a dangerous situation, and I think that's another reflection of a bad choice on Colin Firth's part, is that not only did he miss the grenade, but he maybe put these people in a situation where they weren't ready yet because we're going to find out. We're going to watch this training session. They're going to create the illusion that death is always hovering above them, but truthfully they're very respectful about death and they would not have put students in a situation that they thought they wouldn't live through. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. It's just kind of weird to think because most of the trainees, I think all of them, we're not going to get to know a lot of the trainees that come later in the film, but they all seem very young, very connected to their parents. One of them is 
we'll find out later, going to survive this attack because of his parents. Eggsy is still living at home with his mom and having a lot of parental issues. I think of this as basically college-age kids. So the fact that this trainee, Eggsy's dad, is married and has a kid who's probably around a year or so old makes him feel older than the rest of the trainees we're going to meet. Right. And that's, I guess, what threw me. But it's helpful to have this as a setup. I do think it, it doesn't make sense in the moment, but you file it away. You're like, I'm going to understand this by the end of it. And we do. We eventually understand these relationships. They have a physical object that makes it very helpful. He goes to see the mom. He gives her a medal. There's a phone number on the back. When you need a favor, call it. All of this is good setup for, you know, a lot of exposition just whizzing past me. And Harry takes a lot of the blame for this death because he didn't know that the person they were tying up and shooting. I mean, Harry, who's really, he's the star of the film. Colin Firth gets top billing and he's going to shoot this guy in the legs to get the information he needs. Missed that he had a grenade that he was able to pull out. And so he personally goes and visits Michelle and Eggsy the people who the dead trainee left behind. This was all kind of a shock to me, because if you listen to our Books and Nachos episode, in that, the Harry character was the uncle of Eggsy. I really like the changes that Matthew Vaughn made for this movie a lot better, because really in the comic, Harry came off as a douche. I mean, he was an uncle who just left his sister in the ghetto to go bang multiple guys and would only show up to get his nephew out of jail every so often. Here, that Harry isn't related, that he just feels an obligation because he takes responsibility for the death of Eggsy's father, a marked improvement. I went into this with the comic fresh on my mind, and there are many, many times in this movie where I went, ding, movie better. <laughs> and that was my hope, if you listen to the books of Nachos, that was my hope, is that this would improve on what I felt Mark Miller just kind of coasted through when he was writing this comic. And I like this change because when you see what happens to Eggsy's mom, you know, you get that flash forward. It is heartbreaking. It, it's more than just, oh, here's my sister who's screwed up her life and living in the ghetto. No, here's someone they got a pretty nice home and the husband that was going to have some kind of respectable career. And then you jump forward and they're living in the projects. The mom has been taken down two or three or four notches in her looks. It's a bad situation and it is heartbreaking to see that. Well, Dean's very successful. The stepfather is doing quite well in organized <laughs> yeah. crime. He's got a bodyguard watching TV with them. I mean, we don't all have that, right? Yeah, that scene is kind of weird, I think. I, I cannot get a peg on the relationship between Dean and Eggsy's mother and the bodyguard. Uh, three's not a crowd. What is there to figure out? Well, what is Dean messed up in? I, do, I don't think we have any concrete... Pre I mean, we can just assume it's anything bad. Drugs, smuggling... Uh, Extortion, yeah. that kind of thing. I think he's a pretty small-time crook. But big enough to have a gaggle of goons that are willing to jump when he makes a phone call. So she picked someone that was up and coming in a different way, and it's reflected. 
in her life now. And Eggsy's kind of in a life of crime as well, but we don't think of him in the same way because partly because he doesn't get along with his stepdad. He's not working for him. And he's holding on to that memento of his dad. He's holding on to that medal. He wears it every day, not thinking that he's going to need it. Just, I think he wants to be close to him. And we do get a few moments here in the beginning that establish him as someone that has compassion, that has heart. He plays with the baby sister. He seems concerned about his mom. He's a hooligan. But he's a hooligan with a heart, maybe? I mean, we definitely get the sense that Eggsy is a kid that can cause trouble, but isn't a bad egg. And I hate to overthink this, but is that baby Dean's baby? Is it the bodyguard's baby? Is it somebody else's baby? At the end of this movie, is there a custody fight brewing? (laughs) Yeah, I think it's Dean's. I mean, obviously, if Eggsy was the only child when Lancelot was killed, then would have to be from some kind of other donor. I do think they toned Eggsy down. It's something Vaughn did with Kick-Ass. He turned down a lot of the cynicism I felt in the comic. Eggsy, he felt more gangster here. They put a, a hat on him kind of sideways and a chain. I never felt like he was like this bad kid. Like they're setting this up as James Bond meets My Fair Lady. He didn't feel street enough. Yes, he was living in the projects. He dabbled in crime. When we see him steal a car, though, it's another gangster's car. I felt like they could have taken him down a few notches to make his redemption a little bit better. He, they even gave him a backstory why he's going to be so good when he gets into the Secret Service training. He was in the military for a little bit. He was going to go to the Olympics. Like He was actually a really smart kid who just didn't keep up with it. Yeah, he's not a bad guy. He's just not living up to his potential. That's the way that I see it. And keep in mind that they talked about him... Entering the Marines, they talked about him being this Olympic-level gymnast. Both helpful to explain away how he is going to become what he does later in the movie, but also it implies that his mother didn't get messed up with Dean right away. It took a while, the downfall was slow, but it was Dean specifically who Eggsy at least blames for his life going off track. Well, he's turned it into a pretty cool parkour side career. I gotta say, every time that I see a movie set in London or whatever where they have those housing projects, I don't even know where that is, but with all those awesome like 45-degree slants to the cement blocks and all that, I'm just like, oh good, we're gonna get some parkour. (laughs) Here's the thing though, yeah, we get some great parkour but with a lot of these scenes, especially in the opening, I feel they lack a payoff. Like, he does all this cool parkour to get away from the gang, and then he just kind of gives him the forks and walks away. Like, I wanted more of an arc for him. He seems like a really good kid already, except he wears his hat a little askew. Yeah, I think I like that, and I'm just gonna put it out there. This movie has a pretty corrupted heart, and I definitely feel, you know, I'm not a Pollyanna. I mean, I can take an edgy movie or two, but I, I'm i glad there's not too many edges to our main character, because some of the things that he's put through and that we're going to deal with... Yeah, I like the fact that what causes him to wreck the car is that a fox appeared in an alley. That he was a good enough driver that he could have kept going backwards from the cops and gotten away with his crime and all that. But he's looking out for little things. He looks out for the baby. He looks out for this little fox here. It's seen as a personal weakness later, but for me, it's my end to like this guy because I think it's important to connect with him pretty early. I'm right there with you, Stuart. The movie that I thought of when I was watching this for the second time was Attack the Block and how we had kind of a similar thing of UK thugs 
who have to become our hero. Yeah. And I think that in Attack the Block, I remember at least, Jacob, you and I agreed. They went that too it, far in that one. Yes. Yes. It went too far. Yeah. Moses nearly, yeah, it, it looks like it could be, well, any kind of, it's a mugging, and it could have been even further assault. The way that they frame it, it's pretty horrific, and the character does get redeemed, but yeah, I agree. I didn't want to see a Moses-level kind of crime kid in Act 1. Me either, and so I was glad they kind of went with this heart of gold kid in bad circumstances. It makes things a little bit easier for where the film's going to go, and you also have to think that if he was a true thug along the lines of the people he's hanging out with, then Harry wouldn't consider him a viable risk. He has to be a good kid in a bad circumstance, and it's that good heart that's going to get him out of that situation, because nothing else will. He has no money, he has no prospects, he has no help from anyone. When Eggsy gets arrested after... An amazing car chase. I mean, I know we're going to start car chase movies next week with the Fast and Furious film, but I love Eggsy driving in reverse from that police officer. That was just, to me, Vaughn just has this great way of filming these action scenes, and this car chase is up there among one of his best. Yeah, it's not long, but I did enjoy it. It was the first time, again, this film maybe because we had a prologue and then we have the scene in Argentina which feels like another prologue like I feel like okay finally the movie's starting and yeah I'm smiling when we're seeing him drive backwards and get away from the police and he calls up and makes that Oxford's not brogues reference and that's when he meets Harry and they go to the pub for that scene that if you've seen any trailer for this movie, you know this scene from beginning to end. Yeah, again, another improvement from the comic. This fight breaks out in the comic for no real reason. But here, it's motivated. It's Dean's gang. They want to get Eggsy for stealing the car. But Harry's there to protect him. It's where we get to show off the gadgets, right? I mean, if these are spies, they got cool stuff, just like uh, James Bond would have. And here's where he gets to show it off. It's a fun scene. I like most of the action in this, even though it's a bit CGI. But I just don't think they've reinvented the wheel here because, you know, these are all gadgets I can imagine Daniel Craig, hell, Roger Moore busting out. Or the Penguin. Yeah, the Penguin. Yeah, this is uh, old school stuff. They haven't updated gadgets. These are the gadgets you would expect to see in a spy movie. And my problem here, like, I like most of this fight, but... I had to look to see if there was a 3D release of this film because so much of the stylized fighting I actually had a hard time following. It's almost like it picked one object for the camera to follow around this whole bar room. And I found it hard at times to follow what the action was until it kind of pulled away and you can see, okay, he's opening the umbrella. It's got x-ray vision. He's setting it to stun. But a lot of the hand-to-hand stuff was hard for me to follow. I know I saw a trailer for this movie in 3D, I think way back with Days of Future Past. Obviously, it was going to be a post-conversion job. They decided to save the money on it, and I'm fine with them saving the money. I didn't have any trouble seeing this. I really liked the style of this fight. That tooth that goes in front of the guy and you get the guy's reaction. That's what Matthew Vaughn does that I love about Kick-Ass and X-Men First Class is bringing the humor with the violence. When you see that tooth, the odds of somebody being able to recognize a tooth going past his face is really unlikely, but... 
that this thug is like getting out of the way because he finds it gross for a spit-covered tooth to hit him, not worried about the fist of the guy who knocked it out. It's reminding me of that scene with Magneto and the two Germans in South America, just that kind of fun. It's got a bit of Guy Ritchie in it. That's not a compliment. Sometimes I find his stuff, like I haven't seen any of the Sherlock movies because I've seen some of the Sherlock fight scenes and I'm like, ugh, I don't want to see that. What's impressing me about this is Colin Firth is the last guy I would expect to take a punch or to swing at somebody. I mean, I don't think he's ever had a part like this, right? I mean, he's always like the simpering boyfriend that Jane Austen picks the other guy, the more handsome guy or whatever. He's always the stiff upper lip that, you know, is left on the side. Did he punch Bridget Jones, Arnie? <laughs> no, but he did get Bridget Jones. He was the stiff upper lip guy, but he beat out Cad Hugh Grant. Yeah, he's got wit. He's a smart actor. I think he's great with dialogue. I just never thought he'd get a part like this. I don't know how much is stunts, how much is CGI, and how much is him just putting in the time at the gym, but I'm convinced. For the most part, I don't think that I would like the scene as much as I do if it weren't for the fact that it was Colin Firth doing it. And he does it so effortlessly is what I like. You know, he locks the door with the manners maketh man and just takes control of this. And there's something that I caught on the second viewing of this that is really important is how he's using non-lethal tactics. Not that he's being polite. I mean, he's bloodying people up, hitting them in the head with filled glasses and things. But when he's being shot at, he hides behind his bulletproof umbrella and takes the moment to go to stun. And this is also being filmed in kind of that shaky cam that we ripped apart when we were reviewing the Hannibal series and what Ridley Scott did back around the turn of the century with Gladiator and Hannibal. They're using this kind of technique and rapid camera movements and rapid editing during this fight. This is going to come back later in the film in a perverted twist. And I think they're setting up here an echo of what we'll see later in Kentucky. But it also is a good scene for Eggsy. I mean, again, I'm just taking a little bit back to Jupiter Ascending. I Let's not go back there. Yeah, I don't... <laughs> How do we have two movies in two weeks that rip off the Men in Black Neuralizer concept that we can just erase people's memory? I did laugh at that. Yeah, Harry's got a little dart in his watch. He sets it to, what, amnesia and shoots the bartender. And I really see this movie, it's a lot like Kick-Ass in ways we're going to get to. It's also a lot like Men in Black, if you think about it. I thought for sure when he had that amnesia dart that he was going to hit Eggsy with it. And then Eggsy wouldn't remember having met Harry, but would be being trained by Harry the same way Will Smith didn't remember his encounter with the alien, yet he was being trained by Tommy Lee Jones. I thought they might go that far with it. In a lot of ways, it's the same, though, about this stiff organization that runs secretive and protects the world, and this new street person bringing his street hustler tactics and shaking it up and providing them the energy they need to fight off the newest threat. But the reason why he doesn't do that, Arnie, I think, is because... Colin Firth got a lot of guilt. He killed this guy's father. He's going to step in and play that role for Eggsy for much of the rest of his time that he has in this movie. He's mentoring him. He's going to buy him a suit. He's going to give him tips and advice. He's going to try and steer his career to be the Lancelot replacement. But even when he doesn't get the gig, I'm jumping a little ahead, but he still wants to be a part of his life. He's still trying to pay back that debt. And I think he wants to test him and make sure that he's good on his word. This kid is saying, I don't ever blab. I won't say anything about you. 
he puts a tracker on him. He has that confirmed when his abusive stepdad is slapping him around and wants to know who this English bloke was that beat up all of his goons. That's how you know Eggsy is true street because snitches get stitches and he will not snitch. I do love that. Like it turns into a megaphone and they start warning the stepfather, Dean. Harry's like, I have everything on you. You leave the boy alone or I'll release this all to the cops. I think that scene really helps with Eggsy's character to show that he's getting beaten up. Everybody saw him with this guy at the pub. There's no secrecy there. He didn't hit everyone with an amnesia dart, only the bartender. That Eggsy stays quiet, it shows a moral integrity that matters to this character. And that's what gets him the gig, right? I mean, that's because he was quiet and being beat up by his stepdad that Harry calls him to the tailor shop and takes him down. This is his introduction to the world of the Kingsman. It's kind of a coincidence, yes, that at the same time that he calls the back of the medallion to get out of jail and, you know, he's got no other way to bail himself out of this circumstance. At the same time, Harry is on the hunt for finding a replacement for Lancelot, because we've seen in parallel in Argentina that one of the Kingsmen had a solo rescue mission that went astray. Yeah, that was Lancelot from the opening scene. So we got to see how he became a Kingsman. We get to see how he dies as a Kingsman in a scene that is one of my favorites in this movie. I love this entire scene in Argentina in the mountains. I love even how we get there because it starts, this is actually the first scene after Harry leaves Eggsy as a baby, the camera, there's some great camera work here. It pans to a snow globe of a mountain, and then we're actually in the mountains. And this is so reminiscent of James Bond doing all of his mountain skiing pre-credits excitement. And what they've got going on here is, it seems, a perfect James Bond setup. A whole bunch of henchmen have Mark Hamill, who's playing Professor Arnold, not playing Mark Hamill himself. Yeah, that was confusing because in the comic, Mark Hamill plays Mark Hamill. And I gotta say, Mark Hamill, I hope they get him a personal trainer for the next Star Wars film, because man, dude is looking rough. No, I, I disagree. I, it was a little bit of encouragement for The Force Awakens. I feel like he, he didn't look <laughs> as bad as I thought he was going to. Let me put it that way. I haven't seen Mark Hamill since he played Trickster in The Flash, and I thought he was more <laughs> preserved than I would have feared. But yes, I remember you guys mentioning that in the comic book, that celebrities are going to get kidnapped and that they name drop real celebrities. The first one kidnapped is Mark Hamill, actor from Star Wars. So the fact that he's here playing a character, I guess it's just a joke on the three people that read the comic book. I guess there was a lot of rumors that there were going to be all these different cameos by celebrities that would get abducted. None of those are in this film. I thought it, that would have been fun, but they drop, I think, Izzy Azalea's name in here. That's only because she had a new single on the soundtrack that plays over the end credits. It's that really painful song. Yeah, I, I was hoping her head blew up, but I don't think it did. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't even get to be seen. I don't think she was a big enough star when they filmed this. She really became a star in the meantime, so I think they filmed the scene with a TV news person. But yeah, I'm kind of glad that they got away from, in the comic, it was just this megalomaniac kidnapping his idols, William Shatner and all of these sci-fi people, a number of Doctor Who actors and things. It was basically like he was going to conventions and doing kidnappings. But here, this Valentine's a very different kind of bad guy, and Professor Arnold is a scientist who's come up with a theory that the only way to save Earth from global warming, we can't cut carbon emissions, we can't stop global warming 
Unless most of us die. So it was his theory. That's actually, he's the first one kidnapped? I don't believe he's the first one, but at least in the comic, and this is how I read it in the movie, he was a professor whose theory was, well, we're just all going to die. That's the only way global warming is going to cure itself. And I think Valentine took that as inspiration. Hey, why do we all have to die? If we kill off 95% of humanity, then emissions will go down and the, the elite can continue to live. Yeah, they'll tease this throughout most of the movie. In the beginning here, we just think it's a man in danger. A professor, he's obviously knows some secret formula or has a device that, you know, this is a trope of spy movies. Some guy, some egghead has the key to the plan of an evil mastermind and we know, I think from even the trailers, I think everyone is in on the fact that Samuel L. Jackson is the bad guy this time, right? I think, and I love Sam Jackson, I think this is miscasting. What? Sam Jackson as a techgenius.com billionaire? He's a little too old, that's it. He's got to be in his 20s or 30s at the most to be a tech billionaire. It was supposed to be Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, okay. I get it from the standpoint of you're right. When I think about the Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and all of that. Zuckerberg, yeah. Yeah, yeah th- that Sam Jackson is too street. He doesn't seem like he's had his head in books for years and done computer programming. But I love Sam Jackson in this movie. The, a shining highlight of his career is this role. The lisp, the whole I can't look at violence or I throw up in my mouth. I love love him in this movie and from the get-go the way that he gets his whiskey from his henchwoman I- i'm having fun every time sam jackson's on the screen no offense leo but sam deserved <laughs> the part yeah i took this as what was it mr glass and unbreakable on crack like here's the character he's got this self-awareness of what it is to be a bond villain or a super villain he- he's got the the crazy list he- he's almost the opposite of eggsy he's the guy that should be high class he's got the money but he's dressed in street it's almost a reversal of what eggsy's gonna do and yeah it- as far as making this a comic book movie this so we're not going to take this seriously just in case you know when we get to gazelle with her sword legs you, you think that's a little too <laughs> serious sam jackson's here to let you know we're gonna have fun and i like jackson in this movie i really do he's the one who came up with the idea for the lisp and i do think the character is underwritten and a little bit thin in this regard in this movie there's a scene between him and harry and harry says the movies are only as good as their villains and i just think because this is really an eggsy origin story valentine's a little bit thin of a villain when valentine is up there giving his speech about free internet free cellular forever for everyone i expect him to then turn to the camera and say what's in your wallet it's not working for me entirely i like the playfulness he brings to the role but he's not this villain they should have made him something else in the way of how he's a billionaire instead of this tech genius who created personally these chips he never comes off as smart to me You know, I'll I'll say this, Arnie. I do feel like this film, yeah, there's some tonal problems with it where you go from Sam Jackson to Colin Firth and and they are so opposite. Is this going to be a satire of a James Bond film? Is this going to be in the same vein as a James Bond film? You're never quite sure. At least with the comic, I felt that was more of a satire here. It feels at times they want to do a serious spy or, you know, at, at least a cinematically realistic spy movie but then other times they do want to be self-aware when they have these face-offs between valentine and harry 
I think it's always self-aware, but sometimes that self-awareness isn't funny. Sometimes it's go for the throat. And Sam Jackson's good that way. I mean, usually when I see Sam Jackson on screen, I'm smiling. I think the guy's funny. But he is a scary guy, too. When he wants to turn that on, he can be frightening. And there are roles throughout his career that you look at him and go, yeah, he can be fearsome. I'm only sad that the Bond series never snapped him up. He would have been great to battle Daniel Craig. But if this is what it has to be, I'm glad he's here. My only question is, how did Marvel let him get away with doing this? Isn't this a betrayal of Marvel Studios proper? I mean, can Nick Fury really go and work <laughs> for the bad guys? Well, this isn't really a Marvel Marvel film. This is the same icon imprint that Kick-Ass was done in. So I, I don't think there's any conflict here. Additionally, I think that because this is a creator-owned thing, it's Mark Millar who owns this comic and this property. Marvel got to publish the comic, but it became just like any other adaptation at that point. And if Jackson wanted to go work for Fox, well... There he goes, but he keeps showing up in comic book movies, that is for sure. But you say this is Eggsy's story, and I agree. I think the focus for much of the first half of the movie is really, how is this street kid going to deal with working for a bunch of tailors who are apparently a secret society that keep order above and beyond uh, the world politics and government. This was a surprise. I just presumed that this was going to be rooted in King's Queen, the royalty, all this. I love the way that they write this in as a bunch of tailors lost their clients in World War One and decided morphing out of that, they become this high-tech group. It's like a super cool version of the Elks Lodge. And I do think this was new to the movie, Arnie, if you could correct me. I didn't get that sense in the comic. I thought they were just British spies in the comic. But yeah, here they are a, a non-governmental agency that uh, with no politics. Yeah, that's what I took from the comic as well, is that basically they were like MI6 in the comics here, that they have no government. I was never really clear if they are then operating in partnership and with the blessing of governments to go out and kill people in these various countries, or if they're basically above the law and operating as vigilantes. I never think that's made clear in this film. Oh, I definitely think it's B. They don't check in with anybody else, and I think there's a line early on about how they stay above the world politics. That said, it does seem like they don't set up shop in other countries. This seems to be based throughout England at most, United Kingdom. But I don't get the sense that they have a tailor shop down in South Africa or Australia or, or anywhere else. No, but they do travel around the world on their operations. They start in the Middle East. They're going to go to the States later on here. And Lancelot heads to Argentina, where it is like a James Bond scene, the way he comes in and kills all the guards that are keeping Mark Hamill, Professor Arnold tied up. And you think that this is just going to be a normal spy film. But then we get the introduction of Gazelle in one of the worst CGI effects I've Ooh. seen outside of sci-fi TV in the past decade. You know, I wanted to compliment the violence in this film when this Lancelot character's shooting. It, it's very stylistic, you know, very suave. 
suave and smooth and graceful and brutal the way he'll just stick a gun under someone's chin and pull the trigger. But yeah, our introduction to Gazelle should be awesome. It's a character that's underutilized in the comic. It's a male who hates having that name, hates having these supervillain names. But here, Gazelle embraces it. And then she cuts Lancelot in half. And that was bad. Like, I don't even know how to describe how bad that was. The audience screamed. I don't, you know, it doesn't look realistic, but the thought of it, the fact that they, like a Looney Tune, the fact that we get five seconds before we know he's just going to split right down the middle. That's a horrific thought. I mean, I'm not going to get caught up in the special effects. I think they're just fine throughout this movie. I think this movie looks good. I think Gazelle is a cool henchwoman, well within the tradition of, well, I can't remember her name, but whatever the woman is with the poison shoes from from Russia with love. That's what they're going for here, except she's got blades for feet. They've amped it up a bit, and I love that this is the way that they kill Lancelot. This is the way they establish Gazelle. This is who now they have to fill a slot for in the Kingsman. It serves a lot of purposes by taking him out. Yeah, she's like Oster Pistorius gone brutal, right? I mean, that... Yeah, Blade Runner with literal blades. Yeah. I mean, I love the design for her. As far as that cut goes, this actually tells me something because when they pan out, this is an R-rated movie and not a soft R. I mean, mm. Sam Jackson improved a whole lot of fucking motherfuck in there, but... I thought that was just in his contract that he gets to do that. <laughs> I think that... It was a stylistic choice to veer away from the gore because it's bothering me that you bisect this body. I am fine with blades that will cut through every bone from groin to skull, but that that wouldn't have a gusher of blood everywhere. This movie is going to go a bit more comic book and kind of pull back from the blood a little bit versus Kick-Ass, which was an extraordinarily bloody film. Every time Kick-Ass got in a fight there, you'd see the contusions and the abrasions and they're learning. Well, I would say maybe they're trying to make a scene later on, which I can't wait to talk about in the church, even that much more horrific, because I don't think they pull a lot of punches when we get to that scene. That is a very brutal, violent scene that I've seen people criticize the film for. But early on, yeah, when we see Gazelle using her legs, she'll cut off some arms, and it's all very cartoonish looking. I think that that's fine. I don't need for this to gush blood. I Even in a Kill Bill kind of way, like, I, I could go for that. I don't need it. I don't think that this movie is too soft. Let me put it that way. I don't think many people will walk out of this movie going, man, they just held back too much. <laughs> this movie's pretty tough. It's as kick-assy as kick-ass, even if it doesn't show blood as much. It has violence, but it doesn't have any realistic level of gore. <laughs> Arnie's not satisfied until he sees brain matter. Hey, if they'd cut his throat, that would be one thing. If they'd beheaded him, I'd even go with it. Bisecting? I want a little bit more there. I'm telling you, literally, people were screaming at the top of their lungs during that moment in the theater. It did get a reaction out of my theater, too. I wasn't impressed, though. Mine as well. Not when it fell apart. It was when he was cut and waiting that they were into it. Yes. Yeah. It's the anticipation. It's a relief to know that you're not going to see it as, quote, really would happen. And this is the plot that Harry is going to be given at the time when he's told Lancelot's dead and all the Kingsmen 
have to find a recruit to replace him. Yeah, and this is a, I feel like I'm seeing a lot of this in movies these days. It's the Hunger Games, right? It's a competition. Reality TV is filled with this kind of, we have only one slot and we have all of these characters that are going to get voted off the island here. It's a class issue. With Eggsy, he's the only one that seems street. Everyone else is Yale, Oxford, you know, real alpha douche kind of going on. Charlie being the most obvious representation of a nemesis. Yeah, I was definitely thinking about reality TV and that kind of elimination thing. There's something that gets me here, though. We find out one of these nine people is a plant. So shouldn't there be 10 people if every Kingsman plus Arthur nominated somebody there? Who nominated the fake person? I didn't do the math. Well, the fake person already worked for them. Yeah, I I just think that's a gimme. One gets the competition off. They don't have to find a recruit because they're going to have the plan for their recruit. Yeah, she's the one that supposedly drowns in one of their first missions where they're in the barracks and uh, it's suddenly filling with water. Yeah, the way these movies are supposed to work, you you have a class system. You have the upper class and then you have the street kid. The street kid is supposed to bring the street to the upper class where they learn something. The upper class brings a little of their poshness to the street kid. He learns something. Look, I've seen all the Step Up films. I know how this works <laughs> with the different dancers. I don't know if I really get that here. Like, we'll get this scene where the room fills up with water. Everyone goes to make these makeshift snorkels. And I don't know if I want toilet air. <laughs> well, if you're drowning, it, it's better than nothing, I guess. But yeah, Eggsy goes, I guess, because he's street, he's going to go and punch the glass. Or he knows what a two-way mirror looks like because he's been in the popo so many times. But they're all losers because Amelia drowned and, and they're supposed to work as a team. So right now, Merlin is setting up the concept that even though you're all battling for one slot, we want you to work together. And that's a tricky dynamic to work here, particularly when we're introduced to Roxy, who, oh, you know, the only female being there, she's got the eyes for him. We clearly think this is going to be a love story. And yet at the same time, how can they both prove to be the winner? You know, how can they both get the one slot? She's going to have to go down. At some point, Exy is going to have to go against Roxy. So I'm wondering how that's going to go. I saw that as an allegiance, you know, just between them. You see this in all of these types of movies. I mean, Hunger Games had the same kind of thing where competitors form allegiances. They cheated with that. One should be dead. I'm just saying. <laughs> I was okay with that. I think that this movie is trying to make a statement, though, about class that, I mean, it comes through loud and clear, but I don't think it means anything, if that makes sense to what I'm saying. Because when Lancelot dies, Arthur points out to Harry that Eggsy's dad was not the right choice 17 years ago. And apparently for 17 years, he'd been telling Harry how his candidate was the wrong choice. And you get Harry saying there's a reason why aristocrats have weak chins now. And so bringing in Eggsy, he's quite different from all these Cambridge-Oxford types. And Jacob, you say that the poor person is supposed to learn something from the rich person. I don't always think that's the case. A lot of movies have that kind of Annie appeal where it's just the rich people are going to learn poor people aren't so bad and there's no backwards learning on that it's just one way learning and that's what i think they try to get here is that the rich people need the kind of energy and gumption that the people in the ghetto have but why this is all happening why harry has this attitude 
I don't think it comes through and I don't think it's tied close enough to the main villain plot here. Well, I mean, it is tied to the plot. I mean, you were talking about the difference between rich and poor. Well, the rich are going to buy their way onto Noah's Ark. I mean, we'll get to that subplot when we get there in a little bit. I'd like to stay at school for now. But I see that there is a very obvious theme that uh, the rich, the entitled, are uh, going to be doomed unless they think about the lower class. Yeah, I just don't think this film says much about class. It wants to. It brings up a lot about class. At least it's not as offensive as I felt the comic was, where it's very conservative and if you put on a suit and take yourself out of the street, everything's going to be okay. Here, though, it's a lot a lot of British films have to do with class. I mean, yeah. a great film, if. There is the epitome of your British film about class, where the lower class kid that doesn't get along in boarding school shoots everyone. This film pays a lot of lip service to class, but it doesn't feel like it has much to say about it. No, the fact that Valentine is rescuing the rich people, his rich friends, I don't think it ties well enough that they needed the poor people in any way. Because, like you say, Stuart, we'll hold off on the Valentine plot for a while. I just don't think that what Harry is seeing, what Eggsy is seeing, and what Valentine are seeing ever line up in a way to create a theme. And that would strengthen the overall narrative for me. Well, I just see this as in the tradition of a lot of English movies. Yeah, boarding school movies. I have not been to England other than Heathrow. I don't know enough about the school system over there, but I just from watching your movies, I do get the sense that this is cultural, right? I mean, this movie is going to play better. It's going to be more resonant, I think, to people over in the UK. They're going to get this set up between Charlie and Eggsy much more quickly. I mean, for an American audience, maybe it doesn't resonate as much. I think I'm willing to bet for the UK European listeners, it might have more impact. But that's what I'm wondering is if by not being steeped in the UK culture, I've only been there once, if it would mean more to them than it does to me. Yeah. And their tests in this class, I do find amusing. I mean, the first one is the water. The second one, they pick a dog. And this was one of the later release trailers, but I'm a sucker for small dogs. I love a pug. I love that Eggsy thought it was a bulldog. Yeah. Great joke. <laughs> It's going to get bigger, isn't it? Yeah, and just that he can't carry the pug. He And I noticed this on the second one. I mean, they're doing the running. Everybody's got their dogs. The pug won't run. I have a chihuahua that won't walk. I understand the pulling by the collar kind of attitude. But what does Eggsy do? He points his gun at the dog and says he's going to shoot the dog. I didn't catch it on the first watching. That's going to become a big thing later. Of course, Eggsy has a soft heart and ends up running with the dog in his jacket and just a hysterical visual. Yeah, no, I've co-owned a pug for many years. It was actually my mother's dog, but every time I was around, it was my dog, and I have a, a strong affinity for them. I, I'm not proud of it, but like the way some people feel about babies, you know, put it like a baby expression, and they all go, aw. You put a pug in there, and it does like the side head tilt or whatever. I'm a sucker for it. So yes, later when uh, JB gets his big dramatic moment, I, no one was more impacted than me. I was ne near tears. I was right there. I, I was almost sobbing in the theater wondering where that scene was going to go. So Particularly because I know this is Mark Miller and I know what he's capable of doing. So some of this is cuter than I would have been prepared for here in the opening. The jumping out in the with no 
parachute kind of thing and and nobody dies i feel like miller's version there could be a splat and this training montage it is very different than the comic the comic is much more satirical you're going to learn about the second g-spot so you can make a woman orgasm every time very james bond yeah you, you know Apparently, in this movie, the second G-spot's up the asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Again. (laughs) You know, and Eggsy, or the character that plays Eggsy in the comic, he has a different name there. But, you know, he has a lot of great skills because he played video games. So he's a great sniper because of that. Or he's able to pick up women. They do a lot of... James Bond satirical type training here, though, I do feel like besides this whole dog thing, they do go a little more serious. We get a drowning at the beginning when they fill up that water. I thought this whole parachute scene was very tense where they're all falling. They got to land on the mark or they're out. And then Merlin tells him, oh, by the way, one of you don't have a shoot. And like that does ratchet up the tension and the way they're falling and trying to come up with a plan while free falling. I've never gone parachuting. I I can imagine it's very scary though, but I thought this was a very tense scene, a very exciting scene and really takes a more serious tone to the training. It also led me to believe again that I thought Roxy and Eggsy were going to have more of a physical relationship, a romantic uh, relationship than they end up having. I mean, I thought that we'd get to the point where he would give her the Lancelot spot. He would win it. But because he was in love with her or whatever that, you know, he's helping her here. She is afraid of heights. He's seen as stronger than her. And he's the one that coaches her out when everyone else is, you know, eager to jump out and pull the chute. They tricked me. I'll put it that way. There are three big twists in this movie. And one of them is that Eggsy doesn't get Lancelot. Yeah, I expected him to get Lancelot. I also expected Roxy to not have the shoot because she was so afraid of heights. That entire thing came out of nowhere. Roxy seemed like the Hermione of this group to use the Harry Potter reference. Like she was the smart one. She was the accomplished one. We're staying in British boarding schools, I see. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) but I had never seen her exhibit a sign of weakness so that she suddenly out of nowhere had this phobia of jumping out of a plane, a very rational phobia, I might add, and then it has to be her without a shoot, right? And I knew from the trailer somebody was going to have no parachute. I love the skydiving scene. I love the way it's filmed, both from the ground and in the air. Those are always very beautiful. This film, Point Break, Terminal Velocity, I'm sure I've seen some others, but I always like seeing a good skydive scene. This one is wonderful, but when that tension ratchets up, and I love the one pussy who's like, I'm just out of here, I'm pulling the <laughs> ripcord, and the other five have to do the hand-holding and things, it's a really good scene. What even helps sells it is Mark Strong, Merlin sitting there watching them all on radar, and he's getting even tense about what's going to happen. He doesn't even know if they're going to go splat or not. But this should have set us up. Like, we'll find out. Eggsy's pissed off. He's like, oh, you didn't give me the parachute because everyone else has pulled their chute. He doesn't pull his. He just assumes he doesn't have a chute in his because they were told one of them doesn't. So he goes to Merlin, pissed off. You're trying to kill me because I'm the lower class brat. And Merlin's like, you just got a chip on your shoulder, pulls a chute, and it comes out. This should tell us. Like, We should not be surprised with that twist with the dog that's going to be coming up. They're setting everything up here. But yeah, all this foreshadowing, I I, I think it's smart storytelling here that they are giving us these little clues that are going to pay off later. Yeah, they're very obvious in the second watching. Yes. (laughs) I thought Merlin was going to kick his ass. Anytime you see, if you have a complaint, come whisper it in my ear. Isn't that usually where the person gets their ass kicked? And Merlin would demonstrate his superiority. But here... Yeah, Eggsy did have a parachute, and they were just really stupid for not all just trying first. 
it happens in the next exchange as well. I mean, they're told that they all have to seduce Lady Sophie, but that's just a ruse. They're all roofied. They fall over and they wake up tied to the train where they're expected to blab. And again, they're not actually going to be run over by a train. I love the fact that they all have to seduce the same woman, even Roxy. And Roxy doesn't blink. I mean, she's going to be a damn fine agent, <laughs> whatever the job needs. She deserved the part. I mean, honestly, looking in retrospect, she is the best candidate. But I just presume because we've been paying attention to Eggsy and because here in this moment, again, we know he doesn't blab and he's not going to do it with a speeding train moving at him, that, yeah, he's earned his spot here in this moment, that when Colin Firth is there to greet him as he's raised back up, from the trap door in the train tracks, I figure he's already won. But no, Roxy passed as well. It's Charlie that flubbed. And Charlie gives it all up. And it's a satisfying scene to see Charlie, after he'd been picking on Eggsy this whole time, just lose it like that. And he gives up not just the Kingsman. He gives up Arthur by name, not knowing that it's Arthur there I think pretending to be the guy with the knife, a really good way to see him go. But then that does leave only two, and I am thinking like Celebrity Apprentice, which one's going to be the next one fired? It's the one who won't shoot their dog. And yeah, I what you were thinking about with the parachute scene, Stuart, I was thinking about with this scene. I'm like, I could see them doing it. And it's just such a trope of these types of movies where you have the spy who has to kill his best friend in order to get the job. You have to know the spy is going to be cold-hearted enough to do whatever the job needs, even if it means training with someone the whole time. It's usually a human in the movie because you don't like to kill dogs in the movies. That turns an audience against you. But knowing <laughs> this was coming from Mark Miller, I thought there was a 50-50 chance that that dog was going to wind up dead. And I didn't want to see him shot, and I wondered if I could stay with Eggsy if he shot the dog. But thinking Eggsy was going to become an agent, I thought he would shoot the dog. Yeah, I agree. There's no way around this. They're not going to give him the job if he can't do it. But again, he swerved the car to not hit the fox. He loves that little baby. He cares about little things. He can't do it. And I wasn't even sure if the goal was to shoot the dog. You know, there's always those twists where you're supposed to break the order, and that's how you know you're the right agent. So I even wasn't even sure what the outcome was supposed to be here. Arthur saying to shoot the dog, but maybe the whole point was to not shoot the dog for whatever lesson's supposed to be learned. Eh, I'm pretty sure you fail when you point the gun at the instructor. I mean, he turns the gun and like, <laughs> you asked me to shoot my pug, I'm going to shoot you, Arthur. I mean, thank God there were blanks in there. I think it is interesting that they gave it to Michael Caine to administer this test instead of Colin Firth, because we're going to obviously have a different feeling about Michael Caine by the end of this movie than we do in this scene here, this is sort of a setup. I couldn't see it at the time, but this is a sort of easing us into the idea that he may not be as notable and, and lauded as a, a King Arthur to these Kingsmen. To that point, though, when Arthur hands Eggsy the gun, he points it at Eggsy, like he's going to shoot Eggsy first and then rolls it around to the barrel. And Eggsy does the same thing back, admittedly okay, with yeah. more intensity, and we do think he's going to shoot Arthur, and that's not a good way to get the job. But it in both cases, they point the gun at each other. So I do think this movie is good about creating these scenes earlier, be it the fight in the pub or this here that, yes, echo the later scenes when the stakes are much more lethal. But I do think it's important for anyone who hasn't seen this to know 
It was a test. These bullets are blanks, which we don't find out until after Eggsy's already been kicked out. He steals Arthur's car and is taken to Harry's house where Harry reveals it was blanks. He shot his own dog, but then cared for it for 11 years. I do think it's weird that he stuffed him and put him over the toilet so he could think about him every time. In his words, he <laughs> takes a shit, but <laughs> the toilet's a very reflective part of the home. He also had a whole lot of like butterflies, pinned butterflies in that room. <laughs> Harry had a thing for dead animals. I was wondering, did he have to become best friends with all those butterflies too in his training and <laughs> kill them? <laughs> But maybe the reason why Colin Firth isn't there to administer these tests is because he's actually on a mission. He's actually trying to figure out who killed the last Lancelot and wound up in a coma doing it. How did he end up in a coma? He tracks down Mark Hamill's Professor Arnold. I keep calling him Mark Hamill because, damn it, I've met the man a few times. He's just Mark Hamill. <laughs> he looks like Mark Hamill. He better lose that gut to be a Jedi. He better be a little better in Star Wars than here. I'm worried about him even acting in Star Wars, to be perfectly honest. I think he's Great but here. perhaps I love he'll his do accent. a funny voice. Yeah. <laughs> He's not bad. He I, is a voice actor. <laughs> I would have wondered why he was in this or why you would go to Mark Hamill if you hadn't told me in that Books and Nachos. That was helpful to know that he was the first celebrity kidnapping. Actually, I may not have recognized him, but there was a beat. And then I went, who is that guy? And then I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, he does look a little homeless. But... When he starts to give up the dirt on Valentine, his head explodes, some goop falls, not blood, because there's no blood, but some goop falls on Harry. Harry dives out a window because he has this, like, weird hallucination vision. It's like somebody tripped him with acid. Was that his vision? They wear these, like, Google Glass. I, I mean, Valentine literally is wearing Google Glass, but all these Kingsmen... No, no, he's wearing... It's called V-Glass for Valentine okay. Glass. <laughs> okay. Well, but it's Google Glass. But yes. yeah, the Kingsmen have these special glasses that let them see holograms. I thought it was just that shorting out or something. There's a clear blue splatter, and, and it's a mystery that throughout the rest of the movie, we don't know what really happened to Mark Hamill's head. We know it kind of blue. There was something in his neck that was glowing. It had an Iron Man 3 extremis. It had that quality to it. So I just figured that, yeah, they had maybe mind-controlled him or done something, put something inside of him that made him normal because he's out walking. You know, the last time we saw him, he was being held captive. Now he's teaching class, acting like nothing happened. Something happens to him, blue splatter. We will find out what where all that blue and all those colors will come from. But yeah, Colin Firth is going to wind up in a coma for, I don't know, several months for much of the training of Eggsy. Long enough to grow a medium-length beard? Yeah. And how long does that training go on? I think it's like a full year, right? Because a dog goes from puppy to full-grown dog in about a year. And while Eggsy's dog doesn't change much, all the other dogs change a lot. So I think that training is at least a year long. And does Eggsy's mom even know where he went? Yeah, I agree. It's tough for us to believe that he, again, if we hadn't had that moment with him and the baby, that he didn't mind leaving his old life behind, including his mom. But maybe she just assumed that because Dean was looking for him, he went into hiding. I don't know. But they say Harry was hit with some chemical. They don't even know what. It puts him in that coma. And in the meantime, Valentine keeps his 
experimentation going and when Harry's back on the case it leads him right to Valentine's door because he pretends to be a large donor to Valentine's humanitarian efforts in the weirdest non-product placement in the world <laughs> and it should be said it's Eggsy who breaks the case they track like this chip that was in Mark Hamill to has it a Valentine's IP address but they don't know what that means and then Eggsy's like hey did you see Valentine what he did like this organization that's supposed to save the world just like missed that this billionaire is giving everyone free internet but that is Eggsy breaks the case for them yeah, it's a generational statement. I like that. That that was a there's a good way of having Eggsy have a point in the case and showing that these old stodgy people need his street sensibilities that maybe to them everyone getting SIM cards in their phone wouldn't be a big deal, but to someone that didn't have a a phone, yeah, this is a big deal. Lines around the block, free internet forever, including his mom. His mom's one of the first in line. Yeah, and his friends from the pub that I don't think we ever see again. I do like that they have this scene between Harry and Valentine at Valentine's place. There's a lot of subtext going on, and these two actors play off each other really well. I love Gazelle in this part. I don't know this actress who plays Gazelle. I looked her up. She's actually a dancer. They hired her because she'd be able to make these kinds of moves and things. But she has such a great look with her haircut the way it is and those bangs. Those eyebrows. She looks like a Vulcan. <laughs> I really was loving her as the odd job to Valentine and the way she's serving up and just the back and forth. And I like it when this gets self-referential. Jacob, we talked in the books and nachos how the comics talked too much about movies. Everybody was talking about movies. But I do like this when Valentine finally pegs Harry knows too much because he knows Professor Arnold's teachings that they start talking about spy movies and they get to poke some fun about how the current ones are too serious and everything. Yeah, I did like these moments. And again, this is where you want Samuel Jackson. If you want a tent standoff, I, I think Samuel Jackson, there's a lot of actors that could do this, but he is one of those great actors where he is playing with you. You are a mouse and he is a cat just batting you back and forth. I mean, from serving you a billionaire at McDonald's to, yeah, just leaving these hints that he's really on to you and he knows who you secretly are. I'm surprised it wasn't Royale with cheese, but yeah, I, I, that was, it, t it tells you a lot about who that guy is by that choice, that he's a billionaire, but he still has common man tastes. I mean, he, I think he did come from the street. I, the character doesn't totally make sense, but he does like expensive wine with his Twinkies here. And, and they have a, an important exchange where Colin Firth is saying a Bond movie is only as good as the villain. I like the villains. And Samuel Jackson says, I wanted to be a gentleman spy. That's why he wants to wear suits and be flat and all that they each envy each other and they both are suspicious of each other and you're wondering what is going to transpire here it doesn't actually happen here it happens a few scenes later when they're at a tailor shop we'll find out that valentine had basically put tracker gel in harry's wine and has pretty much figured out who the kingsmen are the whole thing with the happy meal bit i know because my co-worker eats hardy's every day carl's jr in other parts of the world that kingsman had a hardy's tie-in so i even stayed <laughs> for the credits and there is no promotional consideration paid by mcdonald's maybe in the uk did they do hardy's instead of mcdonald's in that scene no no uh, one does hardy's no, no one. nobody does hardy's i mean unless you get <laughs> there is like a hierarchy and like like you you shoot for the big one like mcdonald's and then you're like i mean arby's is at the lowest i mean that's the one you don't want to do the carl's jr tie-in would be the princess at the end in the negligee eating the burger that's carl's jr's advert <laughs> 
advertising. <laughs> Shoving it up her ass, yes. Yeah, but so no, I waited. Is that a paid product placement for McDonald's? Maybe they were hoping for a paid product placement for McDonald's and then McDonald's saw the movie and said, we yeah. don't do this hard R stuff. Yeah, that could very well be. I can imagine that there would be a lot of people that would not want to endorse. Well, yeah, I mean, let's get to it. I mean, once Valentine is ready to test out his SIM card plan, we've had hints about it. You know, he's been meeting with people. Uh, there was a princess from Scandinavia who was so appalled they have her locked up now. Obama has been in there. Republicans <laughs> and Democrats are signing on to some kind of weird hinted at solution for environmental collapse. And we're going to find out that the plan is basically we're going to kill off most of the population and the way to do it is through these SIM cards. And we're going to do it through what has to be the most brutal scene in the entire movie. I'm going to go out there on a limb, though, and say with this plan to kill all the people from a purely Darwinian sense, doesn't that kind of make sense? That's why it's great, because obviously we can't endorse the method. We cannot. Already always finding the reason in this kind of stuff. No, it's it's nihilist and it's awful, but the best kind of villains have a certain logic to their plan. And that is what's kind of great about Sam Jackson. He doesn't like to kill people. He can't stand the sight of blood. That's not his deal. He has worked this problem from every angle. He's pragmatist, and he's just come to a very inhumane solution. It might be effective. He might be buying the world some time by dwindling off the population, but obviously we can endorse this. Again, it's class issue. It's the rich will survive and the poor people will just kill themselves off. Admittedly, it is that. It's just when you think about global warming and what it's doing and the fact that politicians and people alike don't want to change their lifestyles to help the earth and even argue whether or not it will help the earth. You do have to think calling 90% of the population is going to at least stop whatever's happening. I mean, the stand may have had it right. <laughs> but yeah, when we get to see it enacted, it becomes mm. a totally different thing in this church. And the scene starts off so funny. You get this preacher up there with his horrible sweat-covered comb-over decrying the homosexuals and the evolution believers in the same breath. Why didn't they just call this the Westboro Baptist Church? Like, I think they <laughs> could have safely called it that and not offended anyone except the Westboro people and what doesn't offend them. There are obvious <laughs> models for this, and they have gotten some news. I don't think we should give them any more, but the sermon is called America is Doomed. I mean, that's what they're advertising on the sign outside. I think it makes it easier for us to swallow what Colin Firth is going to do in this church. Imagine if we actually liked this group. Imagine if they <laughs> tested it out on a church that seemed innocuous, where the people weren't filled with hate. I mean, is it helpful to know that these people are bigots and hateful, and therefore that makes it okay that they're going to die? I mean... I don't know. It didn't help me. I can tell you honestly, this scene is rough. It is a rough scene. I, and again, this is the scene after I saw it, just reading people's reaction, that either this scene makes the movie for him or it ruins it. There's a lot of criticism about this brutal church scene, but it helps me to know that they're racist, homophobic scum of the earth that are getting murdered here because when... Harry starts murdering him. You know, he tries to walk out, and at that moment, because Valentine could see that he's there, there's cameras in the church, they set off that 
alarm in all the phones and he starts killing people i'm wondering okay is he just trying to escape because everyone's turned murderous and then i'm like oh no he's gone evil too and he's killing people and you know in the comic book this is like 50 couples getting married and they all turn on each other and murder each other that's how they test it if it was that kind of scene with harry murdering all those couples it would be hard to go with him for the rest of this film he doesn't have much more of the film to go with but the fact that these are non-redeemable people it helps me not turn on harry I agree with that, although I'm both awed that his skills make him just the best and this incredible fight. I mean, it's again, it is filmed in that kind of herky jerky way like the bar fight was. And he's using the same kind of tactics where every single thing around him becomes a melee weapon. He's using other people's bodies as shields and as weapons, taking a gun and since it has no bullets, using it to stab people. The violence here, it's beautiful though it's like a dance the blood is low the bodies pile high but colin firth and the cinematography and there's a few editing tricks i caught but it's edited like half this fight is one continuous shot and it is just gorgeous and they're playing Freebird the whole time that took me a little bit back to the devil's rejects i don't know that you can beat devil's rejects for use of Freebird, but here Damn, damn, damn good scene. Love this scene. Love this fight. This is the Quicksilver scene of X-Men Days of Future Past. That is the equivalent here. Like, this scene, if you've been kind of lukewarm on this film, I think this scene can make it for you. It's gory. It's brutal. you got to watch Harry murder not just men, but women, which even though I know they're racist, horrible women, for a man to portray that kind of violence upon a woman, it's still hard to watch. But there's also a beauty to it that Vaughn brings to the choreography here. Let me be the lone holdout then on this beauty thing. The fact that they're scoring it to Freebird means that I think we're supposed to be it, well, it's ironic that we're supposed to be enjoying it like we would any other action movie. Well, it wasn't supposed to be Freebird initially. It was going to be November Rain and it turned out that the guitar solo wasn't long enough. This actually <laughs> came about just by Vaughn googling longest guitar solos and going okay, Freebird, that works. I didn't end up feeling like, wow, I'm so glad that that went down that way. I'm so glad that Colin Firth was able to use his skills in this way. I think it's meant to be a tragic moment that here's someone that is sanctimonious about life. This has to be a horrible moment when the signal stops and he realizes what he's done. I wish I felt more of the tragedy of it because they played it so much of a lark. I can't decide whether it was brilliant as a commentary about movie violence or deplorable. I really, I have not decided. Well, how do you feel about it in Kick-Ass? I feel it was much in the same vein, where they would do such hyper-violent stuff, they were making commentary on it. Right, yeah. I, I, watching a 12-year-old girl, well, I mean, I felt different about it in Kick-Ass 2 than I did in Kick-Ass 1. I, I'll, I'll put it that way. There's a skill to demonstrating that. I know my buttons have been pushed. Even if I hadn't been thinking about Big Daddy, that came later, and the setup of all this, I think I knew there was no redemption for Harry at this point. He would have to die. Really? There's no other way you could do it, just looking at it from a screen point. He wasn't in control of himself here. Do you blame him? That's like saying you blame the gun for pulling the trigger. No, no, no. No, I'm not blaming anyone. I'm saying for a character, when you're a screenwriter and you're looking at a character, and they've just annihilated a church full of people, yeah, I don't 
don't think that we can go on and watch that character have a continued adventure and pretend like that didn't happen. Whether they were at fault or not, there's a black mark on that character. You, you're you done with him. Yeah, except the fact that these are horrible people. This would be like him walking into a neo-Nazi rally and killing all of them. I'm not going to shed a tear for that. I, I'm still going to be with Ari. I think that was a smart choice to put it, him in this setting, or else I get what you're saying, Stuart. I'd be totally on your side. Yeah, if he was in a mall killing women and children, you'd feel different. Mm, but These aren't killers. I just want to point out, they may be hateful people. They're not killers. They don't deserve this treatment, no matter what their politics are. But they turn into killers too, though. Yes, and I don't think that the movie does a good enough job of showing that, because we are so focused on Harry, because he is the best fighter there. And at one point, even Gazelle is impressed that he is staying alive in all of this. He is the last man standing, quite literally. But it underplays the fact that everyone in that church is killing everyone in that church. And I think that it would have actually played better if the church started taking it out on each other and it came around to infecting Harry. Like, the people with the SIM cards went crazy first, but Harry draws the first blood. He turns around and just shoots that woman in the head, and then it's a free-for-all. I think that that makes Harry a little bit more evil. It doesn't sell the scene as much as I think it should. I read the comic before going in. I knew about that wedding scene Jacob talked about. I knew what was happening. I don't know that the common person would, though. That said, I don't know that Harry needed to die, but I get where you're coming from. It's a risky character choice, and so they decide to make the next choice the safe one by Harry dying for this sin. And it's been set up, too. I mean, when you think about his mentoring of Eggsy, that, you know, he basically, the job is done. Eggsy didn't get the part. They're going to talk about it some more when he returns, but he is not going to be a Kingsman. So there was no future for these two. And by killing off the father figure, it's going to force Eggsy to stay in the story. I don't know how I feel about the scene, but I do like Sam Jackson, the way he has to deal with it. That shooting him dead and then having such a hard time with it. They've written this character that he can't stay in the sight of blood. And, and that's funny, but I also think there's some truth here to the idea of it's harder to kill one man by your own hand than to orchestrate through technology mass murder. You know, like he, what he just did was so much more horrible, but the thing that he's having a visceral reaction to is one bullet. Yeah, what's the saying? You you kill 10 people, that's a tragedy. You kill a million people, that's a statistic. I do think it, it illustrates that, and it, and it kind of helps me get over what I just watched. And it makes me finally really hate Valentine, because I see Valentine as the instrument here. Harry was the tool. And I like Eggsy in this movie a lot. I need to give Matthew Vaughn some real credit. The actor who played Eggsy, I looked him up, hasn't hardly worked before. Yet here, he's playing so many scenes with good humor, with sullenness. I'm going with it. But Colin Firth is top billed. He is the star. And I think this movie loses energy when Valentine puts the bullet in his head. I really do. I think it's a shame in this movie to not have him for the latter part. It gets the plot moving forward. Things finally get to a head, but... Did you feel the same way about Nicolas Cage? Not at all, because that was a totally different type of movie going on there. And Nicolas Cage was introduced much later. This movie starts with Harry, and Harry dies three quarters in. That movie, you don't know what the hell Big Daddy is when he's about to shoot a little girl. And... 
then it becomes he dies two thirds of the way through. But I do see that kind of kick ass thing here where Harry was the big daddy and Eggsy is hit girl. Yeah. Yeah. But to me, he's more kick ass. That's the problem. I'm missing someone that's as shocking as hit girl in this one. It's not going to be Roxy. I hate to tell you. No, it's not. <laughs> or Merlin. <laughs> she plays into this plot. We're in the climax now where Eggsy basically, there's a vacancy and he goes back to the school. And I think the story's going to tell me, well, we need a Galahad because he's just been killed. And Michael Caine is going to just give it to him. But no, they've, they've got one more big twist. You know, they've killed Colin Firth. Eggsy didn't get Lance a lot. But maybe the biggest twist is that Valentine was able to convince Michael Caine that his plan was the right one. I do got to say, I maybe because the last Michael Caine films I've seen were all Christopher Nolan ones, it was nice that I could actually understand him in the audio mix this time, as opposed to Dark Knight Rises and Interstellar. But yeah, this happens in the comics, so I was kind of waiting to see what character. I was thinking maybe it was going to be Merlin in this one, but no, it is Michael Caine. And to me, this is the only time where we really get that the street thing gives you an edge over the stuffy Kingsman, because Eggsy, he's light-handed, like all street urchins are, and he's able to switch these cups around that have this poisoned scotch in it. I think you need it, and I think it's satisfying, but it was a shocker. I mean, I think you guys are a bit spoiled by having read that comic book. I was not thinking that the Kingsmen were corruptible, you know. I He knew because the guy broke the rule. He never lets them drink the Napoleon brandy unless you're in the club, and by offering him the drink, he knew that it was poison, but I didn't. What about when you saw that pen, though? That pen was set up earlier that you flip the switch on it and it activates the poison in there. Well, when you see the scar, you know, that's when it clicked for me is that there's a scar on Michael Caine's throat, just like everybody else. So then we know, and, and, I, and I'm with the scene, I know that he's diverting his eyes so they can flip the glass. I know for the rest of it, but I just, I guess I just never thought Michael Caine was capable of that. Didn't you see Interstellar? He was willing <laughs> yeah, to saw the mean, whole earth. <laughs> I knew from the comic that somebody was in on it, but in the comic, I had trouble keeping straight who it was. I don't think it was the Arthur character, but... When I see this whole scene going down, I don't even get why Arthur would make Eggsy an offer at all. He doesn't like Eggsy. He doesn't think that Eggsy's class of person is right for the Kingsmen. Arthur's in it with Valentine. Eggsy's a wild card. Why he doesn't just poison Eggsy and call it a day, why he makes him this devil's deal is beyond me, other than it makes for good drama. What devil's deal? He's basically saying to Eggsy, you can be a Kingsman, even though you flunked out, if you get with me on these politics. And that means join up with Valentine. I didn't think he was serious about that. Yes, he was. He was. No, I think he was getting lip service while he was poisoning his brandy. I don't think that he ever was going to let this kid in the club. Why would he? He's about to hop a plane to go to Argentina and watch the world die. And he's offering to take Eggsy with him. He doesn't push the button until Eggsy tells him to fuck off. He is offering Eggsy a chance at life. Oh, okay. And that doesn't make any fucking sense to me, sense, but it's though. happening. <laughs> no, it doesn't make sense and unneeded, but I didn't notice it, so it wasn't a problem for me. And it's kind of convenient that he did, because how else would they get to the secret hideout? The, they get in on Michael Caine's pass. They would have had a hard time figuring out a way to get to the secret lair otherwise, because the climax is Merlin, Eggsy, going off to stop the big device. Meanwhile, Lancelot is going to have to face her fear of heights 
and go to outer space to shoot down the satellite. And meanwhile, they decide not to bring in any of the other Kingsmen. Why? <laughs> for story safety. I mean, we don't know who is corrupted, for one thing. You just look for the scar. Well, okay. Or, or you drop a line saying, we don't have time to figure out who's been corrupted. The three of us have to go now. I mean, it's easy to write out. It does seem weird that, you know, it's the problem with every Marvel film after the Avengers. Why don't the Avengers just to get together every time to solve the problem? It would have been too much if they did. If we were suddenly meeting all of these people we had never seen before. No, I want to see the people that have been at this training school. And they've only got six hours. So, you know, they know where they're going. Who knows? The other people are always appearing in hologram. They're scattered throughout the world. Maybe there's something just as bad happening somewhere else. I don't know. I'm certainly not thinking this movie hasn't done its job justifying to me why it's three against the supervillain. And really, what Roxy does is also completely useless. It feels like they're hewing too close to the original material, to the comic book, because the comic book has one of the trainees. It has all the trainees banding together. There were no washouts. They were all going to be recruits. There's more Kingsmen in the comic. And they went to do this job. Here, they just send Roxy up to shoot down a satellite which does nothing, that entire bit could be cut, and I enjoy Roxy in this movie, another actress without a lot of work, but I think she does an admirable job, I really like her in this movie, but I wish they'd have given her something worthwhile to do. Hell, she's the one who actually graduated, maybe she should be the one going to <laughs> Valentine's and send Eggsy up in the sky? She can't pass herself off as Chester King, they need a male to put on the suit and uh, get into the base here. That's true. It feels like a waste for her character. Yeah, that it, it could be used at a moment of tension. I was actually surprised that that missile hit the satellite because it ends up not really doing anything but delaying the evil plot for a little bit longer. I don't even remember how she landed. I don't know. I guess she had a parachute or something. I don't even know. At, at some point, she's just calling the mom and saying, hey, hide yourself from the kid. Yeah, she matters so little we don't even see. <laughs> and they want to have it both ways. They want to say that girls can be better than boys, and they want to prove that she was worthwhile, that she got the job, she could conquer her fear of heights. All of that is great, but it does feel like it's lesser than what Eggsy is going to get to do at the climax. He's dressing up in the suit. He basically looks... Up until this point, I thought he looked nothing like Colin Firth, but he really does look like him now that he's putting on the tweed and going in and turning uh, Mycroft, as he calls Merlin, into his valet. I thought that was all fun. But Eggsy infiltrates this base, and it's a cool layer. I gotta like the mountain layer. It is worthy of being a Bond villain layer. Definitely. Yeah, except, okay, so Harry, he does say, like, this suit, it makes you bulletproof. Does it make you literally bulletproof? Because yes. Eggsy's going to run around a lot and have a lot of henchmen shooting at him. And he doesn't do a whole lot of, like, duck and roll to get out of the way. I don't see bullets bouncing off of it, but I'm, like, wondering why he hasn't been pierced by bullets throughout this entire climax. I take it to mean these tailors have the magic formula for a truly bulletproof suit. You know, they call it a modern armor early on. And I just, you know, they're magic tailors. I'll give them this. Sure, why not? It took me a second viewing to figure out, I mean, it's like a James Bond movie, and sometimes I tend to glaze over during these types of things, but I know Eggsy's going to go in there and shoot everybody up and win the day, but his real mission, the real thing he was sent in there to do, and the reason why I think they could get away with taking 
the salutatorian instead of the valedictorian is all he has to do is plug in a thumb drive and get the hell out. That's it. That is the entire mission. And if it wasn't for Charlie, that douchebag from class. Yeah. I love that he was, his dad was already connected with the bad guys. Of course he was. That's great. And that's where the action begins. It's good action. It's no Westboro church action, but it's good <laughs> no. action. It's all right action. Again, there's a lot of shooting. And once in a while, the actor that plays Eggsy will like do a somersault. I wasn't thrilled with this. It seemed like a lot of running with Merlin saying, take a left here and a right there. They have to outthink it. I mean, what I like about it is, yeah, the action is whatever it is, but they're outmanned. And that makes sense to me. I mean, there's no way that these two people can take down all of the stormtroopers and what have you. But all the stormtroopers have implants. I like the brilliance <laughs> of the ease of just, oh, why don't we hit this button and then watch this epic montage of every head exploding in the blue, red, yellow. I mean, that's that's what splattered on Colin First face. I'm trying to figure out what this is still like. It's fireworks. It's so cartoonish looking. But the audience I saw this with, I saw this on a Sunday afternoon, probably about half full. And people were just cracking up. It, the, they do it like a whole ballet. They got the symphonic score going on as just these heads blow up. Again, they could have done this very gruesome, but no, they're going for this literally cartoon type violence where it's just turning into colorful puffs of smoke. I didn't like that so much on first viewing. Again, it's like, what am I seeing where I, I'm expecting scanners here, you know? <laughs> expecting that kind of thing and that just wasn't what matthew vaughn wanted to do it's a fourth of july fireworks scene and it's unexpected that it's going to go that way but for this movie yeah i'm not taken aback by the earlier violence i realized this whole thing has a bit of a cartoony vibe to it and here at the end it even goes a little austin powers ish i think that's the one time it starts going that much into spoof there's a couple stings on the score that almost sound like the Austin Powers, bada wada wada wada, and I think it's almost going there. And these exploding heads are kind of going there. It's fun though. It's a great way to take out all the henchmen, and not just all the henchmen, but all the upper class, everyone that was bought into this plot. Obama, Iggy Azalea, <laughs> every rich person. It really is a one percent fantasy there. I mean, you say that they're not playing into those politics, but to me, I heard the audience applauding. I could feel where this is going. This is anarchy here. I mean, this is a very subversive way of finishing out the movie. Meanwhile, in parallel, the sim chip is starting to work and throughout Rio American baseball games London somewhere apparently there's no time zones in this world yeah I mean you're watching <laughs> I mean the, the stuff with the mom and the kid in the bathroom I mean this is really playing with you I mean I feel like this movie is hitting a lot of buttons sometimes I like it sometimes I don't but exploding heads h-bombs yeah I, I had to smile I thought it was really ballsy that they killed Obama there's something about seeing the president's head explode. There's laws against that, yes. <laughs> you can't talk about that, but uh, they don't show it. You see him from the back. I mean, you don't see a face, but you see the American president who is African-American and has a specific haircut, and then his head explodes. Oh, you do? Yeah. Oh, I, okay. Well, I, I didn't notice. Because wow. Valentine was meeting with him in the Oval Office. No, yeah. no I, I, that I got. I didn't know that we had a confirmation kill yes we had a confirmation kill of him and his whole cabinet wow i mean it was a you don't need to see it to know again like i said all these celebrities that are disappearing that they've talked about the only one that is safe is that princess that had principles and is locked up and waiting for exe to save the world 
And I love that. I mean, the scene where if I let you out, will you give me a kiss? Eggsy's actually fairly naive. All he wants is a kiss. She is offering so much more. I'll give you more than a kiss. And if you save the world, I'll give you my ass. Yeah, again, uh, the audience is really responding to this movie. And (laughs) why wouldn't they? I mean, this is a really hard R. Again, I'm wondering. I'm shocked by the grosses. I'm wondering. I think because it's a spy movie, it's meant more for adults than a comic book movie might be. But again, I'm wondering. Is this movie too intense for the audience that they're going for? Well, it's funny that these scenes of the comedy, because this is set against Valentine still firing that. And while we do see the baseball game and violence on the level of what we saw in the church, we also get to see it in a personal bit with Eggsy's mom. And Roxy did call and say, lock the baby in the bathroom, throw away the key. But now she's going all Jack Nicholson in The Shining. Yes, I did think she was going to say, here's Johnny. I was waiting for that moment. (laughs) I didn't. I really didn't. I know that if you're breaking through a bathroom wall. That's what you expect. We chided certain other movies for not doing that. I think it was a leprechaun film for not doing it. (laughs) Those aren't real movies. But here, this is an intense thing. I don't care about these people in the baseball game getting hit with bats. I don't care about these CGI Londoners ramming cars into each other. I care about Eggsy's mom going after this little baby that Eggsy loves in that bathroom with such a viciousness, this animalistic viciousness with which she is tearing through that door. That is suspenseful. It was really reminiscent of... The rage in 28 Days Later. Yeah. How crazy she was going. And in fact, they alluded to that. I mean, one of the mercenary group's first targets was in Uganda where it was a gas. And I think they made people do this. And then it was in Chechnya. So they had alluded to that they had this possibility to do this to people. That it was in a chip by 2014 was the advancement here. This is like the church scene, walking that high wire act where entertainment and what's meant to be rah, rah, rah fun suddenly almost goes over that edge, right? I mean, watching a mother almost knife her child is a little too intense for a a fun comic book spy adventure. Well, in the way the comic book goes, there's a resolution for that. There's a way to redeem that mom and that daughter. They don't do that here. I I really feel like this climax, we're seeing everyone around the world kill each other, and it's just Eggsy versus Gazelle, and then Eggsy versus Valentine. I don't know. I I wish this ending was smarter and not just a fight. I'm glad we saw Gazelle do a bunch of cool jumps and kicks. I wanted to see that. Oh, Gazelle, when she comes out of that booth, the fireworks are going off because Valentine had fireworks set to explode when he kills the world but there's sparklers and so there's like sparks flying she breaks through the glass a hail of bullets again a gorgeous freaking scene just every frame of that shot is beautiful i can't get over matthew vaughn's visual style and how much it fits my own aesthetic yeah she has been a badass in every scene i'm quaking when she's taking on eggsy i know he's gonna win i'm not sure how i had forgotten about the poison tip shoe but that was a nice way of being her downfall she gets his tie and he gets to prick her and inject her with the poison I did love the German aristocrat salute earlier, too. That was a funny little gag. I also didn't expect Valentine to die by Gazelle's blade. I thought that was kind of funny that Eggsy rips it off her leg and harpoons Valentine with it, and he sees his own blood, and he promised us in his first scene that if he sees a drop of blood, he's vomiting everywhere. (laughs) 
He does. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was, again, I love Sam Jackson in this. If Bond movies are only as good as their villain, that's why this is a great movie, because he is just selling this whole conflict to me so well. Again, there's a crazy logic to what he's done. You can't totally dismiss him here. When he had that speech about Noah's Ark and nobody blaming God or Noah for being the bad guy. It's a really good speech. He is trying to save the world. I mean, he really is. It's a fucked up way of doing it. There's no way that we can get on board with it, partly because we would be the ones killed, but also because just from a humanitarian standpoint, you can't kill that many people and justify it. I mean, at some point you lose your humanity. The human race might survive, but our humanness would be gone. But I love this plot. And again, I brought into this conflict and Eggsy's journey because he's defeated this man in this way. And then after he gets the princess, he goes back and rescues his mother. He is Galavan now. He is going to rescue his mother. Well, he took a little break, but we've we've discussed that enough. I did feel like it was a shame. There was this great joke when we see Harry when he's still alive. Like, he has all these tabloid headlines on his wall. Brad Pitt stole my sandwich. That was, like, my favorite one that I noticed. Oh, there are so many. Naughty nun touched my bum. I mean, those things are hysterical. And the whole point was when these Kingsmen saved the world, no one knows about it. And this is what the headline is. I do wish that Eggsy did get his headline at the end here. We're going to see himself save his mom. He's going to get Dean in a scene that reflects what Harry did to Dean's mobsters at the beginning in the bar. I would have liked him to whatever his headline, whatever his tabloid headline would have been. I would have liked that moment where he puts that on the wall. I don't think it was secretive enough. The world went fucking nuts. (laughs) That is true. You got to think that a lot of people died. I mean, we got to see Eggsy's mom and her child because she had advance warning to lock away. What about families just having dinner? There's some dead children. I don't think he stayed out of the papers the way Colin Firth did. I don't know. I still feel like the headline would still be Kim Kardashian's head explodes. (laughs) (laughs) It was the son after all. Is he a Kingsman here when they have the mid-credits scene and he comes back to do what Colin Firth did to the goons, to his stepfather? Are there any Kingsmen to be there? I mean, is he Galahad or is he just going rogue? Have they taken what used to be this Taylor organization and taken it to a street level? On the first viewing, I just took it as he was a Kingsman. On the second viewing, I was paying closer attention because I'm like, yeah, with Arthur gone, are there Kingsmen? What he says is there's someone new in charge and he gave me a job. I read that as... If there's a sequel, and there very well might be, because this made a lot of money this weekend, that Merlin is the new Arthur, mm-hmm. and that he's the new Galahad. Yeah, I assume Merlin was going to take over the show as the new Arthur. I, th- That was a given to me. Yeah, and this movie did do very well. It made opening weekend far better than projections. It has almost, in three days, made as much as Kick-Ass made its entire theatrical run in North America. And... Vaughn is teasing if there's a sequel, Colin Firth may return. Hmm. Does he have a, what are those called? Life decoys that (laughs) David Hasselhoff used? (laughs) Well, uh, what the article said in which they interviewed him was that it is a movie and we never saw a funeral. We never saw what happened to the body. Valentine says, is he dead? Nobody seems to check on that. Nobody does anything else. The other thing, though, that Vaughn kind of hinted at is that Maybe it would be a prequel sequel where, like, something in Harry's past affects Eggsy's future. So they got kind of Godfather to it, maybe? I would say this. Trust in 
your lead here. I haven't talked much about this newcomer, but I think he's done a great job of seizing the mantle. It may have started as Colin Firth's movie. It's this kid's movie. It's Taron Egerton's movie by the end of this. He may not be a star yet, but in this world, in this universe, he can lead it. I mean, I'm fine with them not going back to the father figure. The father is dead. Long live the father. Let's have a new character. Let's meet those other round table knights that we didn't get to see this time. I think there's uh, room for new British characters to step in where Colin Firth is was in this film. I agree with you. I think that Matthew Vaughn has a knack for finding a un- new talent with Aaron Taylor Johnson with Kick-Ass, and he'd go on to Godzilla and Avengers. And Actually, he's not very good, but bad example. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he was good in Kick-Ass and Kick-Ass 2, and I'm crossing my fingers for Avengers. And he was one of the first to cast Jennifer Lawrence. Yes, she did have Winter's Bone before X-Men, but he got her pre-Hunger Games before she really was hot. And I think this is another case of Matthew Vaughn discovering somebody who is going to be a big talent because I really like him here at the end as the cocky spy, and yet I completely believed him as the mopey ghetto boy too. So yeah, I would be fine without Firth. I didn't expect Firth to return, but since he is the lead character... He's who was first and foremost in the posters, in the trailers. Yeah, it's a safe bet to bring him back if you want the box office, I think. But gentlemen, make your decision. Do you recommend Kingsman, The Secret Service? Jacob. So if you listen to my Books and Nachos review, I had some problems with the pacing of the comic, the source material that this is based on. And unfortunately, I think a lot of that carries over. I had a lot of stop and go, stop and go, starting to get into this, and then it switches. We get a couple prologues, and we get into Eggsy's story, and there's a lot going on in this film, a lot to juggle, and I, I was hoping Vaughn would kind of simplify it a little bit and make it a little bit more streamlined. I, I feel like kick-ass, there's not a slow moment there. It's just beat to beat to beat to beat. Here, it's rough in places, and so it's not as strong of an endorsement as I was hoping I could give it. It's still a very entertaining film. It's got some great action scene, some horrific, brutal, beautiful violence, I would say. It's a beauty to how he portrays such awful acts. And some really funny moments. Uh, I I like a lot of these actors here. Colin Firth is great in his role. The actor that plays Eggsy, yeah, I don't know who this guy is, but I do like this actor, and I do like how he plays the character. I like what he does with the material he's given. Samuel Jackson's a lot of fun, a fun villain for this film. So... Yeah, it's a mild recommend. It's not as strong as I had hoped, what I would expect from Matthew Vaughn after Kick-Ass and X-Men First Class, but it's a film that's a lot of fun. It has fun with the spy genre, and it's, well, Stuart will probably bring this up, but it can be hard to stomach at times, so if you're sensitive to that, be aware, but I think that is one of the strong points of this film is how it takes these horrifying acts and whether it's with Samuel L. Jackson's character, Valentine, making (laughs) genocide seem like a logical, rational decision or just the beauty of the cinematography in that church scene. Vaughn does great things with that, making us almost applaud at horrific things. So yeah, it's a mild recommend for me. Stuart. Mild, I'm surprised. Better than Kick-Ass 2? Yes, better than Kick-Ass 2. Okay, thank you at least for that. For me, I'm much more solid on this movie. I think this movie 
is as good a James Bond parody as Kick-Ass was a superhero parody. And partly is because just because it's a satire doesn't mean it's all funny. There are some real tough stakes things here. There's some things here that are almost too tough for me. And I'm surprised because I'm a 40-year-old guy. I, you know, I've seen a lot. I can, I can handle it, I think. But yeah. So you're getting weak in your old age is what you're saying. Well, uh, <laughs> let me just put it this way. You put a gun in a pug's face and my, yeah, my, you can bring me to tears. My lip quivers. I, I do feel like this movie, for anyone, I would hope, will shock them. And hopefully that's a delight. For the most part, there were a couple things that I thought maybe they went a little too far, but that's kind of what this team does. I mean, Vaughn and Miller, they, they like to walk that tightrope. And here, I think they do it very, very well. This is how you satirize James Bond. I like the new James Bond movies. I just want to put it out there. I like that they're serious and grim. But yeah, if you want to bring back that 60s Connery goofiness, this is how you do it. You don't put Vin Diesel in a fur-lined collar and, you know, have him surfboard with a machine gun, you know, not triple X. This is how you update James Bond. They've done it great. I recommend. As for me, yeah, it is a recommend. I like so much about this movie. The thing Stuart likes least is what I like most. That church scene is just a spectacle. It is a cinematic marvel in that scene. The editing, the cinematography, the effects, the stunt work, the choreography, the music. They edited Freebird. I have my hand at editing songs in certain ways, and they did some edits there that were phenomenal. That scene is just great filmmaking. Whether or not you agree with it morally, you can't argue with this film's visual style. And that's where Matthew Vaughn is again excelling, is taking okay source material, but adding a level of humor and smartness and a visual flair that is really great. I think everyone should see this movie. That said, it's not a strong recommend. I mean, I can watch Kick-Ass and X-Men First Class again and again and again. I think from casting to visuals down the line, those two films are near perfect movies for what they are. This movie has some flaws. I don't think the villain's as strong as you do, Stuart. I disagree. I don't think he's given the time. He has the burden of most origin story villains of just not being villainous enough. And despite his genocidal plot, it's also one that I'm like, damn, that kind of makes a little bit of sense. Even if I would die, if I'm dying for the greater good, I might go with that. <laughs> I mean, it's the equivalent of Eggsy's dad throwing himself on the grenade on a mass scale. You applaud one man who throws himself on a grenade. You ask seven billion to, well, you get some pushback. But I don't think Jackson was right for the role the way they wrote it. If he's who they got, they needed to change his profession or they needed to keep looking for another actor. And I love Jackson. I love Jackson in this film. I just don't like him as Steve Jobs. I don't think the themes in this film are as great. I don't think it's as well balanced. I mean, in many ways, this is X-Men First Class. It's Secret Spies First Class. You have the training scenes. You have the failures. You have the group. You have the whittling down. You have the betrayal. I mean, there's a lot of parallels between those two movies. This one falls far short of that mark. Of the three movies we've reviewed of Vaughn's, this is the one I like least. But I love Vaughn. Honestly, this isn't hyperbole. He may be my favorite 
director working in Hollywood today. So his weakest effort is still a very, very good film that I recommend. Wow, who would have thought I was going to be the one to like it most? It may be a little bit lesser. I mean, the movies you cited, X-Men, First Class, Kick-Ass, I think that's number two and number three on my favorite comic book movies of all time. Uh, This is going to be in the top ten. It may be like number six or seven. This isn't in my top ten. Guardians, Avengers, First Iron Man, Kick-Ass, X-Men First Class. This isn't even Days of Future Past to me. Yeah, this wouldn't be my top 10. Much like Kick-Ass 2, I think this is better than Kick-Ass 2. I don't know if I'd go and revisit this one, though. I will revisit this. I'm going to put my pre-order in. Again, that church scene, the gazelle jumping through the glass. So much in here. Great moments with just a few weak ones. The only thing weak about it is that Take That song. I mean, we didn't accept that band when we were doing boy bands back in the 90s. The (laughs) fact that they, like, get the end credit song. Oh, brother. You obviously didn't stay through the credits. Iggy Azalea comes in with a worse one, so. It's not worse. I did hear it. But, uh, (laughs) yeah. Uh, That that was the uh, patronizing for the Americans. We like her, right? Because she's Australian rap. I actually do like Iggy Azalea. I knew you would! <laughs> I just didn't like that song. Oh, you're so fancy. Her her Black Widow song's really good. Oh, great. And you know what else is great is those of you who've gone over to our Kickstarter page and pledged. We are almost a third of the way to our goal, and I'm freaking out. What? Let me look at this. True. While you looked that up, let me, th- this is a true story. I didn't know the... Kickstarter was launching as early as it was today, ruined my whole productivity day at work because it was just constant refreshing of that screen to see what our fans were willing to do to get this book published. I actually got very emotional at one point. I think within a few hours, we surpassed $4,000. I didn't think there's any way we'd do that in the first day. I actually did well up. I almost started crying, sitting at work, doing nothing, just watching Kickstarter. It's amazing to see the support we've already gotten in less than 24 hours. Incredible. That is stunning. Let's just put it in perspective. We don't have any of this money yet. Kickstarter, the way it works, if we don't hit 40, nobody pays anything. That money goes away. You get to keep it. So what I'm capable of doing to get to 40 will be determined on the (laughs) next 29 days. (laughs) Yeah, and just to drive it home. Yes, if you pledge, this is not a donation drive. If we win, you win. All of these rewards, we've opened the vault. We've talked about it. We've teased it. All of our previous donation podcasts are available as rewards for this Kickstarter, but you only get them after this campaign ends. We have 29 days to go as of this recording, 27 or 26 if you're listening to the edited version. And if we don't hit our goal, There are no rewards given out. It's not like a donation drive where you donate and then you get the shows. It's success for all or it's success for none. So I really hope that people want us to review these 100 movies, 300 reviews in one book. I don't trust projections. I know that we have big out of the gate and I love the 166 people who have donated that amount and given us a huge start. I mean, this is great to get such a huge freaking start. We got to keep the energy up. And really, we said this before, our true goal was to have a book, a physical product. This goal is for the ebook based upon one day I'm, I'm crossing my fingers, but I'm not counting any chickens. Don't jinx it. 
there's a hope maybe we could get a printed book. Yes, I, I agree. What, if we end up going over 40, know that we're not getting rich off of those profits. That money is going to go to making this book better and better. There are other things we're not even including in the budget right now that we can pay for. So it would help open the doors and, and allow us to give the best product we can give. I mean, that's what we want to do here with the now playing underrated movies we recommend book. And if this goal seems high, I mean, go and research getting your own book published. The lawyers, no. especially dealing with Hollywood and dealing with copywritten stuff. We got an editor. We don't want this to be a collection of blog posts. We want this to read professionally. We got an artist to do original art. And if we do push further to do a printed book i mean just the shipping cost from china alone i mean it's not a cheap endeavor and that's why we're asking for your support to make this a reality and again thank you to everyone and we're gonna push hard for this we have a bonus review coming out next friday we're not gonna tell you what it is you just have to wait till friday and then the friday after that we're going to have another bonus review and since this book is underrated films we recommend we decided to pick an underrated movie. And the first review we're doing is hopefully hitting one segment of our audience. We're going to hit another, the horror fans in our audience, by doing an underrated horror movie that we may or may not recommend. But you get to pick for us from five different choices. We kind of went through and tried to decide which ones are underrated horror movies that we haven't reviewed. I mean, Leprechaun into Hood, obviously an underrated classic, but our options here are Babadook. Babadook. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> part of why it's underrated, no one can say the name. <laughs> Wes Craven's Shocker. This is Arnie's choice. That may be me. I, when, <laughs> when it came up in the options, I'm like, well, I have to put it on the webpage. So Shocker is there. Wes Craven is overrated. Although I love the screen movie. So I give him a pass on that. But uh, most of his other works, okay. Does a brown arrow count as underrated? Or does that mean <laughs> it is just a shitty film that deserves its rating, but somebody can take perverse pleasure in it? Well, we can talk more about that. Elaborate those details if it ends up getting voted. But there are other ones to choose from. Sinister, I think we. I wanted to find a, a more modern one. Something that hasn't been called a classic yet this one's got the groundswell there's a lot of people that are telling me that this is the best that blumhouse has done better than paranormal activity i've actually seen it once and i don't think you guys have seen it at all but we could be doing that one we've done some john carpenter stuff i like his sci-fi stuff not familiar as much with his horror stuff but this one it writes that line they live oh yeah starring the never underrated rowdy roddy piper <laughs> he is underrated and then the last one which I don't know is underrated or horror, but this was Stewart's insertion. <laughs> yeah, well, this is my point. It's like nobody thinks Usual Suspects is underrated. It's a it's a known 90s quantity. But thinking of it as a horror movie, as a slasher movie, in which gangsters get bumped off, I do think it would be unusual to look at it from that vantage point. And so thus, I decided to include it in the list of underrated horror movies. Well, you can vote now at nowplayingpodcast.com. We're going to have a link from the homepage and from Facebook and Twitter where you can vote for which film you want us to review and that will be out as well during this Kickstarter campaign. So please head there. You don't have to pay today. I, they take the money if we're successful in mid-March. So pledge today. We will be back on Tuesday with The Fast and the Furious and until then, hail Satan 
and have a lovely afternoon. Um, listen, boys, I've had a rather emotional day, so whatever your beef with Eggsy is, and I'm sure it's well-founded, I'd appreciate it if you could just leave us in peace. You should get out of the way, Granddaddy, you'll get out. Mm. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. It's the nature of Kingsman that our achievements remain secret. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review. I'll be right back. Also at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can find reviews of hundreds of other films, including every movie based on Marvel Comics. There are reviews of all the Spider-Man films, the X-Men movies, the Avengers series, and more. Nowadays, they're all a little serious for my case. Give me a far-fetched theatrical plot any day. You can also find reviews of other film series, including Batman, Superman, James Bond, Robocop, Terminator, and dozens more in the Now Playing Podcast archives. Did you see the film Trading Places? Mm-hmm. How about Nikita? Pretty woman? You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. How deep does this thing go? Deep enough. See exclusive videos and interviews on the Now Playing Podcast YouTube channel. You can find the link on our homepage. We are an independent international intelligence agency operating at the highest level of discretion. Now Playing is an independent podcast with no sponsors or ads. It's donations from listeners like you that keep Now Playing on the air. You can give money by clicking the support link at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. We ain't got much choice. And if we was born with the same silver spoon up our asses, we'd do just as well as you. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. We're here to enhance your skills. Test you to limit. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. I have trouble understanding you people sometimes. You all talk so funny. Now Playing is not affiliated with 20th Century Fox or Marv Films. Kingsman, The Secret Service, is the intellectual property of those companies, and no infringement is intended. Do you know what that means? Then let me teach you a lesson. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts, and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Words to live by, exit. Words to live by. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2015, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. I look like I get... I can't tell you how much, just side note, I've had to counsel my mom about (laughs) Fifty Shades of Grey. She calls me every week to complain that she saw another trailer or an interview or what have you. I'm like, Mom, I can't help you. Plus all of the other type of spy movies. They even name drop Jack Bauer, Jason Bourne. Just those two. Right, but the other spy movies out there that I haven't seen because I don't really like those films, but... Well, Jack Bauer is a TV show, and it's owned by Fox, which is why I think he named the dog after it. Oh, Jack Bauer's 24. I was thinking Jack Ryan. I got those two confused. (laughs) The student who beat Eggie out for the Kingsman slot team up to stop Valentine alone. Are you going to let that Eggie stand? (laughs) Yeah.
I was going to, yes, but since you called me out. Well, that's what the <laughs> I mean, other yeah, kids call It's not them. like anyone can hear it, but yeah, usually you like that fix before anyone does. Yeah, and normally we're not live where I just think the show We all heard on. it, Arnie. We all heard Eggie. <laughs> now here's the part where Arnie gets the giggles. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I do think a vibrating chair would be perfect for Fifty Shades of Grey, though. <laughs> yeah, I, but I the poor that. ushers could just think about the cleanup detail. Oh, another soda spill. Oh, in, in Times Square, you got people who clean that off the glass all the time. They could just take an extra job and do night duty. I think Jupiter Ascending fucked up Jupiter Ascending. Yeah, you can't make that worse, is it? I mean, it's like, wow, not only did they shit on my face, but it had peanuts. I mean, that's kind of the equation there. Right away, usually you think James Pond. James Pond. I'm thinking of the. I don't know what I'm thinking of. I don't you know a frog th- th- thing. Th- that that was yeah. It was some like video game or something. I don't know. Particularly because I, Mike Millar. I I just know. Is it Millar or Miller? Mark Mark Miller. Okay. We Miller. we, we go all, right. all over the map. Yeah, on here. I feel like I've heard both. <laughs> like to my. You have heard both. Okay. But Mark Miller. And that's funny because I called him Mark Miller, and when we did Kickass, Jacob kept calling him Mark Millar, and I thought I was wrong. <laughs> and I've been educated since. So. <laughs> okay. Manners make us man.